Okay, Assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to day 14 of <laughs> Surah Baqarah. I have to say, I don't know why, but I'm really nervous today. Um, and so I'm just going to say it out there. So hopefully that will make me less nervous. Um, but part of it is because, um, well, first, first of all, you know, we're, I'm so grateful that the end of Surah Baqarah coincided with this holiday weekend. And obviously we don't want to be celebrating Thanksgiving per se, as we understand, you know, all of the colonial influences and all of that. But I'm grateful for, for the, the holiday because it allowed our extended family members to come join us in person. And I think for us, this is a celebration of the end of Surah Baqarah. Um, and it's such a special occasion, and I guess I'm nervous because I really, I, I hope that we can do it justice, and I wish I'd had more time to prepare um, something maybe more, um, you know, I don't know, interesting or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, just to say that it's incredible that we started this journey on Surah Baqarah um, on um, October the 6th, and now is November the 24th. So it's been quite a long engagement, um, and, you know, like when I think back, like I, you know, I've taken now three notebooks or two and a half notebooks worth of notes just on Surah Baqarah. Like I started a brand new notebook just to, you know, with the cone, you know, with the new new Surah. And, you know, so trying to even prepare for like an introduction to, you know, um, 13 days worth of Surah Baqarah is impossible. And I, you know, like started thinking, okay, maybe I can shortcut it by looking at what I wrote in the last session when you went through the summary. And then I went, oh, God, no. Then maybe I can go to the beginning and see where we were. And I think that that's what's so fascinating is when, when we go back and I, and I look at where we were at the start of Surah Baqarah. <clears throat> um, if you recall, we had just finished all of the Meccan Surahs, 67 Meccan Surahs. And Sheikh pointed out that, you know, this was so fascinating that, um, you know, we were at the same place that the early Muslims were when they were embarking on their hijrah and they had completed everything that God had said, you know, they had taken everything that God wanted to tell them before the hijrah. And now there is a certain expectation of, you know, their development and their understanding. And, you know, now they're on to the next adventure as were we. And it's like, are we ready? And are we prepared? And are we worthy of receiving, you know, what would be then the first surah um, in Medina and so I think back to you know October 6th and how I felt and so excited um, but also just you know uh, a little nervous and now looking back on the you know the 13 halakha sessions over um, two months it's like oh my gosh what a transformation right what a journey we've been on with just this one surah and <clears throat> what we've learned and and what we've um, uncovered in Bible study and, you know, um, walking through, like, first, the history um, and Sheikh putting us in the context to understand, like, what was going on at the time, um, what was in the, the heads of, you know, the early Muslims, what were they experiencing, what were their emotions like, you know, what were their, their anxieties and trepidations about leaving everything that they had. Um, and going to this new place where they would be vulnerable and, you know, God knows what challenges awaited them. Um, and then to walk, the, go through the history and then to go back and cover it again, then detailing everything that this incredible surah had to teach us about so many different things. 
which, you know, for me, like completely babe in the woods about what surah bakara had. I mean, I think at the start of the journey, I really just knew that this is the longest surah and just, you know, some of the most obvious things that people had heard about, you know, what's, you know, what's in it. But purely, um, you know, impressionistic. And then now to actually have walked through and then understood the laws and the morality, um, the points of morality that came with it, and just the overall message and how, you know, God was, you know, acknowledging um, just the intimacy of creating, of, of his creation, right? God created us and knows us and knows what we're feeling and knows what, we're, our, what our tendencies are. Um, and as we embark on this new journey, what we need to know, and you know, you're hearing it from how the early Muslims are receiving it, but we, of course, are trying to understand all of that in our time, in our context, and just, I, for me personally, how powerful it was for me to understand this message at that level and feel like, oh my God, God is speaking to us in our time. I totally see what God is saying. I see what, you know, what we need to do. I see, you know, there's just so many game changers, right, in, in this surah in terms of, um, you know, whether it's calling out the Jews and saying, sorry, you're not the chosen people by ethnicity, but that everyone can be a chosen person based on their actions. Um, or, you know, the rights of women or, you know, no compulsion in religion and understanding that for in the ninth century, that was radical. Like how many times did Sheikh through this journey say this was radical for that time and paint the picture for us so we really understood and felt like, okay, when you say no compulsion in religion, for us now we think, yeah, of course, no compulsion, you know, it's your, your choice, whatever you want. But at that time it was like no you know kings own their people husbands own their wives parents own their children so it was really radical to come in and say no you can't force you know your child or your wife to believe um so and so many of these game-changing kinds of things so it's impossible to go back and you know summarize and, and i think that this engagement with surah bakara is something that can literally be studied for a whole lifetime and um just going back to my notes from the very first halakha, I feel like, oh my god, I, I just want, I'm looking forward to the time, you know, when we get through all of this, um, to be able to go back and then really do it justice and really try to learn it um, so that it's not just kind of a, like, a blurry, a, a blur of 13 halakha sessions, but to actually say, okay, you know, this is what Surabhatara says about this. And, I mean, every single moment, I know at the end of every single halakha on, on, Surabakara, all of us were like, oh my god, that was incredible. Oh my god, that was incredible. I can't, you know, it's not going to get any better than that. And then, sure enough, it would get better. <laughs> and so, <laughs> to have every session like that is, is really amazing. Um, and I guess it's also very hopeful. You know, on the one hand, you feel like, um, you know, that things are so bad for Muslims around the world, and, you know, it's easy to get despondent about, you know, how is, how is it going to change? You know, all the people in power who um, have all the money and are, you know, controlling the holy sites and controlling the Muslim world, you know, they, they seem to have everything locked down. So what does that mean for people like us who, you know, want something more beautiful and different and want to find meaning and, and be empowered by this message? Well, I think that everything we've learned in Surah Baqara provides that hope and, and that anchor. Um, and I think for me personally, I feel like, okay, our job is just to let people know that this exists and that this is the, 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 the way forward, you know, and that um, this message is just about empowerment and liberation and intellect and heart and soul and everything that is intuitive to you. 
everything that God wanted from you from the beginning and in, in the spirit of love and in the spirit of you know God wanting to have a relationship with us and having us be the best versions of ourselves whether we are scholars or doctors or students or um, help you know uh, homemakers um, it just doesn't matter like this message is here for you just to be beautiful and amazing and and honor everything that God wanted for us so there's so much here um, so I'm, I'm really excited for um, now an opportunity to have um, some of you know the interaction like we've, we've thank you to everyone who sent in questions um, we're gonna start with the, the project Illumin folks here first um, and then we'll work into um, some of the the other um, interactive questions and thanks to Rami because Rami we got a whole slew of questions and Rami worked um, collected everything and put it you know um, cleaned it up um, and and just you know served it up so I could be here and share it with all of you um, I wanted I this is one of my favorite things to do and sorry I just went back to um, the Abdul Halim uh, Quran which you know oftentimes it's like fun to just see like how did they summarize or how did he summarize the surah and where are we relative to what we've experienced now um, so this is the summary um, the cow a Medinan surah and the longest surah in the Quran containing material revealed over several years and named after the story of the cow which the Israelites were ordered to slaughter in verse 67 it opens with a response to the plea for guidance in Surah 1, dividing people into three groups, the believers, the disbelievers, and the hypocrites, and closes confirming the tenets of the faith given in the opening verses. The, the addressee shifts as the Surah progresses. At various times, the text addresses people in general and uh, who are urged to serve God, the children of Israel who are reminded of God's special favors to them, an urge to believe in the scripture that confirms their own, and the unbelievers, sorry, and the believers who are given instruction in many areas. That's it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's hard, of course, I, you, know, you can't, if, if you wrote like an adequate summary, you would need many, many more pages. And so it is true that um, God speaks to all of these people. So, which in, in summation is God spoke to humanity in these pages um, and tried to, you know, tell the children of Israel to believe in what was sent before. But alhamdulillah, I think that all of us um, have received so, so much more. And um, inshallah, you know, over time, um, as we go back and review and dig in, um, we'll, we'll continue to, to benefit from this. So I, I want to actually just start um, with, with my own question, um, which I hope you guys don't mind. I'm just going to jump into the front of the line. Um, so executive privilege, yeah, no, it's, that's not good. But um, I'm hoping that, um, you know, we, we sort of, I guess, take for granted. We show up here and we're so excited and we're like ready to receive. And, you know, like Sheikh spends, you know, he's obviously spent an entire lifetime studying this and, you know, the amount that he prepares um, and is engaged with this before he arrives here and makes it look so easy, right? It's just like, oh, let me just walk you through this. And by the way, I'll tell you, you know, I'll give you this opinion and that opinion and whatever. It's just like a conductor with a symphony and we just enjoy the, the music. Um, but I wanted to just start with a question about, um, for, for Sheikh. So it's kind of a, a personal, now you, you, you've obviously, like lived and breathed this for so long now 
But for Surah Baqarah, would you mind situating for us, like where was Surah Baqarah in your journey, like with the Quran? Um, like where did it fall sort of in, um, you know, in this equation? Like you, you've talked about before how, you know, most people when they start learning the Quran, they don't start with Baqarah, they start, you know, with the short surahs. And I'm curious if you could just tell us like where it fell in the journey and what were some of your like biggest like queries about, you know, Surah Baqarah? Like what was it that drove, you know, your, your um, discovery when you were like, okay, now I'm ready to start thinking about Surah Baqarah? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, you know, first I'm, I wanna I'm gonna say this um, just in case it's not obvious to people. Um, when um, Grace and I never coordinate um, not what I'm going to talk about and what she's going to talk about and um, it, when when she asks questions or says whatever she says she says it as her own autonomous human being um, as do I um, so if, uh, so the, the, the question, um, is because although we're married, but we're both extremely busy and we, we come to, we, we come together in the Holocaust probably more than we come together during the day. This is when we talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she wouldn't. And she doesn't know, you know. She know she she knows um. She, you know she she knows when I'm ordering books, definitely because she pays for them. Um, she. But that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't. Uh, she knows if I write something and I ask her to read it. This is um, when I get to ask him questions. Early on in our marriage, I got a question quota because I used to ask him questions all the time. And I usually hit that quota. Now it's like, okay, I'll yeah, just wait I, for Halakha. No. I, I, I gave, I, I, I did, that, that is true. I did give her a quota on questions she can ask me because it was just too much. And... Um, no executive privilege, no one's privilege. And, and, and often actually quota on, on how many times she she can invade the den. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a very nice husband. <laughs> I, I guess now I think about it, I'm not a good husband at all. Not true. Um, but anyway, okay. So the, the, the reason she's asking about Surah Bakr is that she really wouldn't know anything about um well, obviously, I mean, first, when when you know you're memorizing the Quran, it's it's, it's um, like most Muslims, uh, Surah Al-Baqarah uh, was the first among the first surah. I mean, first you you start out, of course, with the short surah when you're very young, but then 
um, when you're memorizing the Quran, you memorize it in order of the way it's organized, right? Not in order of revelation. And um, uh, in 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 my case, uh, memorization what I I would m memorize visually, meaning that uh, I would actually visualize the page. So, which meant that I didn't concentrate on the meaning at all. And like most Muslims, Surah Al-Baqarah was um, uh, somewhat of an enigma. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it ta it's talking to the Israelites, which is something quite remote from us, um, to addressing historical events that in Quranic discourse looks like it's an like it is referencing things that it doesn't explain so it's already referencing things you have no context for uh, so as the Quran often does it, it seems like it's an ongoing co conversation and then the Quran interjects in this ongoing conversation but if you don't know the ongoing conversation you have no and then it, it has um, it addresses a, a, a range of laws, and then it has interjections like Ayat uh, Kursi, the 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 very closing of Surah Al-Baqarah, and um, the way you approach it, although even you know, is that you you think of it as blocks, like you know. In this segment, it's doing this, and this segment is doing that. It's, but part of the hardest thing about memorizing is that there is no one emphasizes a coherence of themes for you to help you memorize. So it is, and no one really tells you why is it a munafiqun here or a kafirun here or fasikun here. Um, um, you know the the terminology that the Quran often uses, and 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 uh, you just the, the, it. And I actually remember when I, you know when I've asked sometimes, and I'm told, well, you know, um, it is the reason it's kafirun here is because fasikun was used in the previous ayah, which basically means you know it's not an answer at all. It's like well. It, it sounds it sounds like it's haphazard anyway so that was it for for many years but of course when I started on uh, this journey um, uh, I and I was approaching the Quran in order of revelation to try to understand it um, to try to understand it in relation to the historical dynamics that uh, the Quran addressed. And knowing that Surah Al-Baqarah was the first major revelation after Hijrah, um, you, you already have a very complicated dynamic, you already have a very complicated history that you must situate the Surah in. And 
unlike a shorter surah from the Meccan period, it, it is not sufficient that you read the tafsir and that you uh, do dhikr and that you pray on the matter and that you... Um, it is simply not sufficient because um, with a surah like Surah Al-Baqarah, like a number of surah from the Medina period, a lot of them, you absolutely have to go beyond the tafsir literature to understand the nuance of the historical dynamics and to try to understand uh, what the actual, because it, it is, one of the things I noticed about Surah Al-Baqarah right away is that it is consistently says, yes, alunak, yes, alunak. They ask you, they ask you. So it, it is, in, 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 as in legal dynamics, you know, it is a claim and response. So there is actually, if they ask you, then there must be a reason for they ask you. Um, people don't, you know, God is not going to say they ask you and they're not asking. And if they ask, then there must be a reason that they're asking. And there must be a reason that God chose to respond because it, it, it is not conceivable that God responded to every question. Um, and, you know, was it just haphazard question and meaning like the, the, the Sahaba, they were just sitting around and someone thought of a question or was it an actual social dynamic that resulted in what the Quran sums up as they ask you. Um, so, I mean, it, it, the Surah Al-Baqarah is, um, it is one of the Surah that you are, you engage in an enormous amount of research and research in not just in Islamic sources, but research in any historical sources that can shed light on that very beginning Medinian period. Um, that's, and then the, then you, the, the evolving realization, because it is an evolution, that of what, remember that the assumption in, in when that, had become by then when I reached Surah Al-Baqarah was had become firmly anchored. The assumption is that there is a thematic unity to every surah, and that every surah has a reason for being a surah, for being you know broken, being designated as a chapter and having a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the question, of course, is, so it, it is It is like any time a reader wants to get into the mind of the author, it, it, it is always a challenge, right? Because if the author is, is human, um, and it, what, we could take the language and say the intention of the author is irrelevant. So it's just what the language says on its face, and that's it. But that doesn't work with a divine author. 
that might work with text that is not divine because the language itself could render the author irrelevant. I could say, well, all that matters is the language and I don't care about the intentionality of the author. But with the Quran, you can't do that. You, you can't say, I don't care what the intention of the, the author, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But then if you say you care, then you must be exceedingly conscious of the arrogance in assuming that you can understand or even inquire into the, into the intention of the divine. And that's an extremely humbling um, consciousness. So you are treading what that means is before I say this is what God intended, I better do my homework uh, to the upteenth degree because it is it better be a claim that Allah who sees and knows all um, knows that I've done my absolute best in vetting that intentionality um, from everything that is humanly possible. If it means studying languages, so, so, so be it. If it means, you know, spending six months trying to get a manuscript, so be it. Uh, if it means um, what you're very familiar with, you know, staying up all night, day after day after day after day, so be it. But it, it is that because once the intensity, once you come to the to accepting that it is not sufficient that the literal language we just can rely on the terminology and say that the intention of the author is irrelevant, and then you realize that the obligation of approaching that intentionality. Um, and the intentionality is rendered rather rather nonsensical unless you really try to, to the best of your ability, obviously, to visualize the historical dynamics and the actual conversation taking place. Because there are so many references in the Medinian Quran um, that it's clear that the recipients knew what what the Quran was was addressing or uh, had a context that but for the the readers centuries later um, without scholarship it's, it's missing you know you, you just have no frame for it you, you're um, even things that you know w w what is the significance of saying write your debts or witness your debts. Why was that so important? Why did it deserve a Quranic legislation? Why did God deem it worth talking about? If you can visualize many other social issues that existed in society at the time, why did God choose to speak as to some issues but not other issues? Um, these are, you know, so it's an analytical process and, and, but 
and I underscore this, it is not pure analysis unaccompanied by piety. Because without these two components, it doesn't work. It's, it's flawed and it's um, corrupt. Um, you must humbly in every step beg God for guidance. And at the same time, never assume that you've received that guidance. Both, constantly. You just never assume that you've received it, but constantly beg for it. And you must do your homework. The, the most troubling thing that I find about, it's either the traditional way, where other than the Azbab al-Nuzul reports, there's no contextuality in the, in the traditional context. It's, it's either hadith or nothing. Um, or once you get Quranic studies outside the traditional methodology, uh, then there's a complete absence of Muslim normative commitments in modern Quranic studies it is like the illegitimate offspring of biblical studies. You know, it literally grew out of the discourses of biblical studies, but illegitimately so, because there is no actual Quranic-specific theoretical foundations for that the literary criticism around the Quran. It is all an act of imitating um, Western scholars. Uh, and it is often just literally, you know, transplanting methodology without much thought, without... Um, and add to that, that outside the traditional sphere, Quranic studies is, is distinctly non-pietistic. Meaning, even if you're Muslim and you're doing Quranic literary studies, as long as you're not within the traditional realm, you go out of your way to pretend to be not a believer and to take the Quran as a human um, document, as a, as, a, as a human product. And, but, you know, the traditional method is, is, is deeply unfulfilling for someone who uses their intellect um, and who is anchored in modern systems of knowledge, not living in the 12th century, and their brain has, has not developed since the 12th century. And the, it is the, the, the method, the system of modern Quranic literary studies is extremely unsatisfying, if not sometimes quite offensive. And so um, that's where you, you, you end up. Um, so it was a, a, a Surat al-Baqarah, we, we covered it in, in 14 weeks. Um, I think I was researching um, losing sleep, buying books, reading books. You know, I would never tell you what, why I'm buying the books 
for what project I just you know I would just say these are the books I need that's why we're bankrupt alhamdulillah um, uh, but um, yeah it was you know a good year um, do you remember what year it was why do you want to know well, <laughs> no, I'm just wondering what I was doing at the time uh, no, it was it was sort of Bukhara. I mean, it's in my diaries, you know, even, and you'll find it in my diaries. Um, but I think it was, um, it was after the brain tumor, so it was around 2009, okay. around 2009. I think it was 2009. So, so just in a, as an aside for people who, um, well, for people who know us, they know we have this huge library, and it's like this represents our savings and everything like that. And you know, part of the journey of, of like being married to a scholar too is getting used to the book buying habit. And uh, and the one thing that um, people should know is like on the one hand, when you're sitting down and you're paying the bills, you're like, oh God, how are we going to do this? God help us. But then when uh, you know it's and, and you see like your husband searching on Amazon, you're like, oh my God, God help us, please let it be okay. <laughs> And on the one hand, you're like, oh, okay, here we go. But I have to say one, two things. One is that God would always help us pay our bills. Some, some way, some way, shape, or form, like that check from somewhere you didn't expect would just arrive just in time. And this has happened so much now that it's like there's no coincidence, obviously, as we've learned. But, you know, when you're actually living through that, you're like anxious, 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 anxious. And then getting upset, 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 and then it's like, oh, here's the check. Okay, what's the point? That was number one. So I learned, you know, after several times, there's no point in getting anxious. And then number two is, if you actually, when I would ask him, like I'd see him searching for stuff, or he would find a book, and then I would be like, oh, what's that about? And then he would start telling me, and then I would become like, oh my God, you have to get that. <laughs> so <laughs> part of what was exciting is to know, like, you know, to discover so all the different things. The, the moral that, of the story is for students who find themselves in the same predicament to the wives of these students, <laughs> don't, don't divorce them. <laughs> you know, that, that's the moral of the story, just don't divorce them. And just there's this whole world of, of, of knowledge that you just never know about, and it's, it's actually so exciting to see. Um, but I, you know, this is, I think, um, thank you for, for that answer, because I, I think that one of the game changers of, of this approach, um, you know, I, I'm always thinking about, like, what can we, what are we doing here that hopefully will make a difference for the future trajectory of Islam and for Muslims, right? And so we know how unsatisfying um, just the traditional or just the modern approach is. And I think by having now gone through even just Surah Baqarah alone, you've really demonstrated the power of this methodology and underscored the, the absolute necessity of, you know, the, the intellect and the piety. I mean, you said in one of the sessions, you know, you cannot be recognized as a true Islamic scholar or Quranic scholar unless you have both. It can't be just an intellectual engagement, but you have to have piety. And I think that that's a really bold statement that I don't think I've ever heard anywhere and that I think most people would not necessarily admit to. But I, I believe that now, having demonstrated it and said that... Well, in the, in the current academia, it's suicide. I mean, in, in the current... The way that, the, I mean, and I often feel really bad for students because I know that if they're beginning their career uh, and if they don't want to end up teaching in a, 
in a one of the ghetto Muslim institutions because Muslim institutions are ghettos. They're, they're nothing more than ghettos. And we, we just, the sooner we admit that and confront it, um, and the, the, the ostentatious affectations of trying to get affiliated to a university, that, and that university, because I've been in these meetings and I know how people, how academics talk about Muslim institutions behind their back, whether, you know, affiliated with Georgetown and they're in some Gulf country or affiliated with um, uh, Berkeley or affiliated with I don't know what. Um, it, it, academic institutions respect you when you have thorough vetting processes, serious peer review, and um, publications. And your publications speak for themselves. But if so, if you don't want to get stuck in the Muslim ghetto institutions and you want to compete in the secular academic world, when it comes to especially Quranic studies, if you say I'm a believer, your chances of getting hired, you know, go way down. Um, and that makes it very, very difficult. You know, an Ismail Faruqi or a Fazl al-Rahman or, you know, and even, I, I'm, you know, they're unusual. And and with the rise of Islamophobia, there was a period where discourses on pluralism made academic institutions rather shy about discriminating against Muslims. But with the rise of Islamophobia, I've noticed that um, academic institutions, academics, have become far more emboldened about openly excluding um, insiders to the tradition who speak from normative commitments, loyal to the tradition. And and I and, and this is um, I mean. I, we fought in my own school, um, you know this very well, we, we fought a very, very uh, vicious battle to keep Islamic studies open because um, there were all types of parties that wanted to close Islamic studies under the guise that it was a place that preaches Islam, not teaches Islam. And eventually, that battle was won by keeping Islamic studies open. Um, and I was the chair of Islamic studies for, I don't know, 10 years or whatever. But once I was gone, Islamic studies is still open, but the same Thing about teaching versus preaching has come back and you know uh, yeah I just I, 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 I just often my heart goes out to Muslim students um, who want to cut a path in the academic world and at the same time do not want to put on the pretenses of 
um, saying, you know, I don't really belong to this tradition. And I mean, it's an ongoing battle because you still confront yeah. a lot of these same issues today, even at the law school to an extent. Um, I mean, you know, I'm nearing the end of my career, and and so I, you know, I. But I think people should know, like, yeah. you know, when, when you started this journey, I mean, there were very few, if any, Muslims in just as law students in law schools, and you were really pioneering in terms of being probably the first professor in a law school teaching Islamic law, because at that time it was so uh, unusual and so difficult, and literally, I mean, being there, um, you know, he had to actually like meet with every single person on the law school faculty as part of a, a you know a jihad to really teach people like why should Islamic law have a, a seat in a law school right um, and you know but but my my point being that in like even Surabaka like demonstrating this methodology like I can't imagine approaching the Quran in any other way like with you know without the requisite intellect and piety and I feel like having now displayed the, the vast difference in quality of, of understanding, you know, our book, that this is something, this is a standard that we as Muslims now can point to and insist upon. And for young scholars who want to see an example of, you know, a, 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 an academic, a scholar who lived his entire academic career being very open about his commitment to his faith, it can be done and should be done. I mean, it's something that we obviously, as Muslims, need, um, as it exists in other faith traditions. You know, it just obviously, the Jewish tradition, the, the you know, Hindus, Chinese, you know, Buddhists, like we, you've talked about um, scholars uh, in those fields. Um, they're all from within the tradition, but obviously in Islamic studies, it's not always the case. But um, anyway, methodology is such a huge thing. I want to start by asking Joe. I know you had a question about methodology, right? You had sent me a question about Jewish, like, the sources. Sorry to okay. <laughs> I'm gonna pull you up and have us start on the Q&A. But did you want to have it? Did you want to say anything else? Because that was extremely valuable. Thank you. No, I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, because if I, if I unload on that, then we won't. We'll have another day of yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, which is not a bad thing. Sorry, Joe. You had a great question. I wanted to start off with you. Thank you so much. Uh, he was going to say thank you for one halakha, but thank you for the thirteen. <laughs> um, so, question is, and it follows on what you were saying about what is what is the standard, what is required for bakara. Is a deep knowledge of the Jewish and Christian traditions, scriptural, historical, linguistic, an, an essential prerequisite, not just in your beneficial, but essential prerequisite to fully understand Bakara. But can you actually understand really what's happening in Bakara without it? And if not, would that not kind of disqualify most Mufesserun in, in history? Um, but then, now that I've got the mic, I'm going to ask another one. Closely related to this. Um, <laughs> I was thinking this throughout several of the halakhas. Is what Bakara is doing, is this not like an, the earliest example we have of comparative religion? Because it's not just polemics. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, and you know, we often associate comparative religion with like later Islamic history, Biruni, and those kind of people, but it seems to be pretty explicit. Mm -hmm. Um, 
facing Yeah, I mean, the, the first question is about, uh, is it imperative to understand an, um, the biblical tradition, basically, to understand Baqarah? Because of the concept, and, and notice that it is the, the Quran itself that is consistently referring to incidents and events that, um, that, uh, uh, that is part of the, uh, the history of the Israelites. And, um, and what is fascinating is that when you study the same events in the biblical tradition, the, the differences are as illuminating as anything. It's, it is actually the differences that often struck me as the most fascinating. Um, um, now, there, there are a couple of things that if you are doing uh, I, I, t I take the, the every historical period has its challenges. We, we must understand that this because this is a critical point. Every historical period has its challenges. There are historical periods where a, an impressionistic perhaps tafsir of the Qur'an, basically the, the alfaz of Qur'an, the, the, what the words mean, um, could suffice. Because if, if you are living in a historical period in which there are many educational institutions that can do the job, then not every scholar that approaches the Qur'an. But we are living in a historical period where alienation from not just the Quran but from the language of the Quran so there is an alienation from Arabic as a language uh, I was uh, reading something inst interestingly enough it was uh, uh, something about the recent Dune movie and it struck me that the author was talking about whether Arabic will be a language a hundred years from now and the author of that article was very sure that Arabic is going to be a dead language a hundred years from now. That it's one of the dying languages. Um, and if you know enough about the Arab world, you also know that there is a serious problem vis-a-vis -vis the language of the Quran, Arabic as a language, the language of the Quran itself, vis-a-vis -vis Islamic sources, vis-a-vis be, lit, being sufficiently um, um, sufficient uh, uh, or a sufficient uh, intellectual knowledge of everything related to the Islamic past. The, 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 everything has become reduced to these broad sweeping generalizations. Um, so this historical period, as I've said in the past several times, the jihad of this historical period is a jihad of knowledge. We Muslims are in such dire 
demonstrates that what is what is required of a scholar today is far more demanding than what was required of a scholar writing, um, you know, in the fourth century. Um, but so having said that, what often has struck me is that the the best commentaries on the Quran, the commentaries by people like Shankiti or people um, uh, like a Zamakhshari or a Razi or a Qurtubi, their biblical literal uh, liter where is the word? Literacy. Liter literacy is actually surprises me. It is clear that they've read the Bible. And it is clear that they know enough to be able to reference the Bible. Um, um, and that is something that if you read the, the, the modern tafsir, uh, is completely absent. Um, so if you are going to you know, if you are going to say that I really commit myself to a scholarship of the Quran, it is imperative that your intellect, because brain is is like like a like a muscle in the body that it, it's you know it, it, uh, that needs uh, that you, if it's exercised it's, it's strong if it's not exercised it's weak. Your brain has to be exposed to far more than just the Islamic tradition. It, 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 your, your brain has to be exposed to languages. Your brain has to be exposed to non-Islamic sources. Your brain has to be nuanced in different, the difference between an Islamic source written in the first century Hijra and an Islamic source written in the 4th century Hijra and Islamic source written in the 12th century Hijra. So the challenge is that what is demanded of us is very serious, the, the type of serious commitment to knowledge that could uplift a people from being a broken and defeated people to people actually making a contribution to anything. And that does require a very serious investment in knowledge. I mean, if what are we investing in? All people in the world, they rise and fall. This is the nature of civilizations. And then people decide to invest in things. So what are we investing in as Muslims? Investing in learning the sciences, math, chemistry, and so on, well, whatever investments we're doing in this, uh, they're, they're, in the Muslim world, we are, we are not making original contributions. So we're, we're just investing to imitate. Okay. So what are we investing in? Um, building of nice, build, you know, nice mosques and people who can, I don't know, put Islamic texts on computers. I mean, it, it's really a puzzling thing, is that the, the amount of investment in, in, in the processes of knowledge is woefully 
inadequate. How many Muslim scholars of Sharia or Quran can comfortably read five languages? Why is it needed? Because someone who has been exposed to human thought across several human experiences, their brain works very differently than someone that only knows a myopic human experience that, and can't transcend it. The way they think of, and this is God's speech for God's sake. This is the creator of all the languages and all the people and all the histories and everything. So when I approach this author, my attitude should be, you know, I want to learn as much about your creation as I can humanly, and I should feel really bad about the fact that I am not a genius and I can learn, you know, 20 languages and, you know, 10 more different cultures and 10 more different histories because I take very seriously the fact that this is God, the creator of everything. And everything means everything. And so I dip into as much of it as I can. So this is a long-winded way of saying, I know I've been saying this all my, you know, as long as I can remember. And I know that the tendency is to hear someone like me and to say, you know, to just say, uh, you know, he just likes to complicate things and so on. But as long as this remains our attitude, we will never emerge as shuhada annas, as, as, as witnesses upon him. It, it, it's just, you know, it, it, Allah subhanahu wa told us, it, it is, it, everything is according to what you invest in. And, and it's, so it's not that. So, um, but you're absolutely right that this is, in terms of comparative, I mean, this, how often does the Quran talk to non-Muslims? By definition, this places you in a comparative frame. Because either the Quran is talking to non-Muslims, but not really, you know, not seriously, so it really doesn't have anything to say to non-Muslims. But if you take it seriously, then, you know, absolutely, if I'm talking to, uh, in, a, in a, at least in a serious context, you know, someone, to Christian, and I'm saying something about what the Quran says about Jesus. And often the attitude, and, and by the way, I, I, this is among the things that drove me in, in, in Surah Al-Baqarah, is that, uh, oh, Whatever you say about, especially, this is my experience, well, no, actually my experience was both Christians and Jews, is that you don't really understand our tradition. You don't really understand the Trinity. You don't really, whatever claims the Quran is making about what Christians believe, oh, that's not accurate. Well, how am I going to even engage you in anything? You're telling me that the Quran is wrong both about Jews and Christians and everything that's not... Uh, so how am I going to engage you unless I actually know something? And not just something, but study your tradition so well 
that I even know more about Jewish theology than the vast majority of Jewish scholars, and know more about Christian theology than the vast majority of Christian scholars. And I can engage in, in, in conversations with you which puts the other person, it, it make them realize that they can't speak down to me, this racial colonial element. They can no longer speak down to me as a Muslim, that they have to deal with me as a peer. Um, that I am going to talk to you about the ins and outs of different theologies of the Trinity um, in a way that's going to force you to take me as an equal. That's the only way that comparative anything can progress. As long as, you know, my experience, and this is another thing that, you know, drove this journey, um, is that my experience, whenever I would be invited to anything involving comparative anything um, with Islam, that as a Muslim, I was always spoken down to. I was never at par, even with someone like Maimonides, who, you know, there, it, it is mind-numbing for, for people to speak to me as if what Maimonides brought to the table is just something that I, as a Muslim, can never relate to. It, it is mind-boggling. But that is an experience I've had so many times. And I would go, you know, and it got so frustrating that you, you go back to the drawing table and say, okay, what's needed? Latin? Fine. Hebrew? Fine. Um, Aramaic? Syriac? Fine. Uh, reading this theologian, reading this school of thought, reading... But it takes a lot of transparency. I mean, it takes... You have to admit to yourself that, yes, they're being nice to you, yes, they're inviting you, but not because they respect you. I mean, it, it, this is the hardest thing to admit to yourself, like in, in academia, because you know, you get an invitation, you go there. Everyone is being nice to you; they're treating you with, you know, with respect and everything. But to admit to yourself that your what you're saying about Islam is there just as a gap filler, but no one is engaging. Islamic anything seriously because no one thinks that Islam has to contribute anything intellectually rigorous or serious and that everyone expects you to present your material in your ghetto field in your little ghetto space I know it is one of the hardest things for especially an academic to admit but Admitting it is liberating if you're going to do something about it. And, um, I mean, I could just go on for example after example after example in my career. Uh, it, it, I would, 
and I've been, you know, invited to all the, the, the typical prestigious things that, you know, uh, make a resume looks, uh, look good. But where any of these invitations, or the vast majority, for a long time in my career at least, the irony of it is that once it became clear that I am no gap filler, and I would start, the invitations became far less. And I'm sorry, but this is a racial colonial issue that, you know, is another topic. But it, it, the word got around that, you know, this is not a, a Muslim nice boy that's just going to, um, you know, um, when you start arguing with people about what Hebrew, what scholars of Judaism have said about the scholar that they're citing and saying, yeah, but, you know, he was criticized for this and, well, he misread this source and, you know, and so on and so forth. It becomes a different dynamic. And I, I, I just, I, I've, I've, I don't know, I, I'm obviously not going to see it in my lifetime because I just, I'm, I think I'm just going to be out of time, but but I, I've always, I just, I've, I've dreamt of, you know, just the transparency and honesty that Muslims would just admit to themselves that you know, the, um, I remember when you were um, having a conversation with Bernard Lewis in Washington, D.C. in the early 2000s, yeah. and uh, it was hosted by a, um, a, a, I think it was a Jewish organization, right? Like a think tank or something. Right. And One a, of them, yeah. somehow you overheard someone refer to you as a work in progress. Yeah. Do you remember that? <laughs> so, and interestingly, it was like, um, it was a conversation. It was, it, it was like one of the, like, uh, I can't remember, national, like, journalism center or something like that. It was a big, big deal. And it was interesting because the way that Bernard Lewis conversed with you, he chose to agree with you, like he would find whatever he could agree with you so as not to engage you. Yeah. And so it was a really like, um, it was a very low impact kind of conversation that was useful for them on their side, but it was um, it was very interesting. So. Yeah, I mean, he um, whatever I said, he agreed with just to neutralize me, mm -hmm. um, and and I re and I actually said that I'm not being taken seriously, you know. You, you, you 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 are uh, you are agreeing with everything I say, uh, but ignoring the 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 normative direction of my argument. Um, but anyway, what that work in progress comment? They were discussing whether I am, quote unquote, a good Muslim or a lost cause a, you know, one of the, and Bernard Lewis said, um, and I overheard it because, well, they were, obviously, they were speaking in Hebrew, um, <laughs> and he said that he's, Khaled is not to be trusted right now, but he's a work in progress, that, and meant that 
you know, maybe he will turn out to be a Muslim who says the right things and do the right things. And uh, it, uh, yeah, Grace knows about it because it's one of the, the, the times that I uh, was very upset and Grace said, what's wrong? And, you know, I, I told her this is all a sham. This is just these people, it's just a sham. This is, this is about uh, getting a native informant working to 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 um, um, prepare a native informant to be a native informant and not about any serious intellectual or moral engagement uh, you know all the degrees all the um, the the accolades all that it, it didn't matter it, it's it was um, yeah so okay True. Given our secular society where God is marginalized heavily in, in various arenas, um, in the sorry, this is regarding verse two twenty one. So, do we need to re-examine the criteria for what constitutes what's translated as an idolater and idolatress um, within the context of marriage? Oh, um, so. What in the context of marriage? The way I remind myself what. Okay. Oh, okay. I I got what you said. So two twenty one is the ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah that says um, that do not marry an idolater and and that muslim men should not marry an idolater and mushriket uh, um, or and muslim women should not marry an idolater either a, a mushrikeen and so Sharif is asking whether idolatry in in modern society means something different well, I mean, it, I, 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 idolatry in in the in the historical context. Well, obviously, it you know it, it had a, a referred to those who engage in idol worshiping, um, and that historical practice. Human beings have evolved um, that. Now, interestingly, practices Christian reverence, because often the argument you get, well, you know, how about um, Catholicism and some of the way that they relate to figures, uh, especially, um, or reverence of the cross is in this form of idolatry. But it's historically existed, and yet, that is not what I believe the Allah was referring to when Allah was talking about idolatry or mushrikeen. So it, it referred specifically to the form of idolatry that existed in this historical context. I think morally, morally, 
if if I am advising my someone who's asking me for advice or advising my children as to partners to marry, I would advise them that while human beings in the modern age no longer worship idols in the historical sense, um, there is a far more pernicious idol that human beings worship in the modern age. Uh, that's the stark materialism of everything. And I would, I can't say it's as a legal matter as haram, but what I would say is that as a moral matter, um, if you want Allah to be a third partner in your marriage, um, ishraq billah, associating partners with Allah, where um, um, your 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 value system ultimately and there are plenty of even muslims that do this that where ultimately their value system doesn't derive from any type of engagement with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but it when all said and done it derives from a basic commitment to material self-interest everything is defined in reference to the I and I feel I know it's what the, the I dictates and I do think that that's not a blessed marriage I don't you know I can't say it's as a, as a legal matter it cannot be recognized but I can say that I don't I think you are going that wrong down the wrong path um, <clears throat> yeah. Let's leave it at that. Thank you, Sheikh. I'm going to try and unjumble uh, <laughs> questions. Um, one question I had that came to my mind when you mentioned Tujarik Kalam, like um, those who essentially make it their business to be in the state of philosophizing and theosophizing everything. And um, towards the end of you know the second page, you know, for example, I was wondering whether you felt that there was a connection in that just because you situated the surah in a way that spoke about um, you know the Jewish scholars and how they essentially made it their business to reverse engineer um, their theology to be the prominent one versus an approach. And what does that say in terms of? Um, modern scholarship amongst Muslims who are always kind of trying to reverse engineer um, their understanding too. So essentially, like we've spoken about this before in private, about picking and choosing, especially in Baqarah, picking and choosing verses without context in order to support a really massive theological claim. You know, things like Imama, for example. No. Mm. Um, uh, and beyond that, I, I had another question in terms of uh, again, the, the start of Baqarah makes a lot of mention um, about Iman and who are the people who are Mu'minin and the, the overall message in regards to Amana. The Amana that 
Muslims should carry that the Jews failed to carry but still have the opportunity to retake and the um, the initial moments in which the Quran starts to use the term yeah you had yeah yeah you had yeah you had nas or something like that do you believe that there is a relationship between the concept of amana and the usage of the terms or the terms like minuna, this kind of thing that it's not just in in the lame way that we kind of translate it in belief you know if you simply believe this etc uh, etc et but r rather that mu'minun uh, bear the message they bear an amana is there a direct connection in in that regards I, I don't know in terms of linguistically but is you know in terms of looking at the overall structure of the surah does it lend itself to possibly making a connection there Um, uh, yeah, it's a bit um, difficult to paraphrase. Um, well, okay, so the the first the first issue was what? Um, I forgot. What was the first? The first is. What did I say? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the Tujarat Kalam. Tujarat oh, 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 Tujarat Kalam, yeah. Yeah, so, um, the inverse engineering. Okay, so the first question is the, the selectivity in, um, selectivity in construction are in constructing argument. Shayani used the expression reverse engineering. Um, the, and the, the second is about the mu'minun, when Surah Al-Baqarah uses the term mu'minun and carrying the amana, the trust. Okay, but the, the first issue, I mean, let's, to Shara Kalam usually as an expression relates to um, uh, um, people who spin talk um, and um, uh, as in Surah Al-Shu'ara that would be the, the, what we talked about in Surah Al-Shu'ara that would be Tujara Kalam people who uh, employ language as an instrument of uh, obtaining results that have nothing to do with principal positions or with what actually is a matter of of conviction and so on. But reverse, in, in the, I think what, you, what you're referring to in reverse engineering is something different because uh, what here is intended is the, the tendency to um, to search, to to go and basically co-opt parts of the Quran, and we had an example of this in in, in the issue of uh, um, mulk. You know, so Allah said, uh, to then co-opt us and say, well, you know, Allah's 
Allah is the one who decides who is in power and uh, whoever Allah so then attempting to remove whoever whoever is in power or attempting to hold that person accountable is somehow a defiance of Allah and to then co-op Quranic language the same thing happens in the issue of imama um, um, and the same thing actually happens in, in so many other different issues that relate to legal matters in Sharia. Um, so to often um, the, the language of the Quran on you know, a specific issue is, is co-opted to support an institution regardless of the the moral message, the moral thrust of the entire, not just surah, but the entire Quran itself. And, and then what we end up with, of course, is a, um, a, instead of a, a coherent argument about the m- moral trajectory of the Quran, what the Quran wanted to, wants to achieve morally and ethically in a, in a coherent view that one can look at and say, okay, I understand what God demands of us in terms of these broad ethical issues, we end up with a very disjointed, um, often inconsistent and often incoherent support for specific institutions regardless of the moral trajectory of the Quran. Uh, and that, that, that's, uh, that's precisely the, the type of problem that we, you know, we, we end up in. It's remarkable, and we saw an example of that. You know, it, perhaps the, 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 the most prominent issue, in my view, is the moral trajectory of the Quran in demanding, demanding, that you cannot live your life and let the poor be poor. It is just not acceptable. But yet, a segmented approach to the Quran can justify um, having, I mean, as we speak, there are displaced human beings living in highly inadequate tents in the heart of the Muslim world um, and, and winter has come in and we all, everyone knows, everyone knows that there are children who are going to die in, in this winter. Many Syrian children, many Yemeni children, many Iraqis, and, and yet the Muslim world is oblivious and it is oblivious precisely because the Quran has, has, is no longer a moral agent. You know, pe- very, quote-unquote, pious people uh, can sit and can teach the Quran and can feel completely oblivious to displaced human beings, to refugees, to destitute human beings, to orphans, Look at the, the, the problem of orphans in, in the moral trajectory of the Qur'an. It is as if the Qur'an is saying Allah will not bless a people that do not take care of their orphans. 
the, the Muslim world is one of the worst parts of the world in terms of taking care, taking care of orphans. No one can tell me that the Quran continues to play a role. If most Muslims live and die having never visited an orphanage. Well, if you've actually visited orphans, orphanages in many Muslim countries, from Egypt to Iraq to Morocco to Tunisia, you will see things that will scar you for life. Muslim or orphanages in Muslim countries are structured where child abuse and corruption by basically the, even the, the, the police force, in, in, and I've worked on this, the, the police forces in Muslim countries think of orphans as subhuman. And there are, the, the shiuch that are appointed to work in orphanages are often the most corrupt shiuch. How in a society which has the azan blurring five times a day and you have, you know, this is supposed to be societies of the Quran. So, and the answer is this segmented approach. You know, it's, uh, it, it, the Quran is not a moral agent. It's, it's not a, a living, breathing, moral uh, uh, entity that is powerful, working in society. Similarly, the issue of despotism. There is no way you can study the Quran. And we've encountered numerous, even in Surah Al-Baqarah, just Surah Al-Baqarah, and end up endorsing the idea of a, an elite ruling beyond accountability. I mean, the Quran has condemned this left and right, up and down, crossways, sideways, every other way. But yet, Muslim societies, again, have an endemic problem with despotism and, and lack of accountability. How is that possible? You know, then you, if you segment the Quran and break it down into like little compartments, each compartment has nothing to do with the other, then it becomes possible. So, yeah, that, that is an immense, immense problem. And this is why, you know, this is a moral project. It, it, is, it is trying to rekindle the role of the Quran as a moral agent in our lives. Because otherwise, I don't know what God does in our lives. It, it, you know, if, if God is basically about Salah and so on and so on, uh, that that just seems like uh, rendering God to in, in such an um, a marginal role, um, and it is and it is not about you know uh, applying the technicalities of Sharia because again technicalities of Sharia are ex exactly that just positive laws but positive laws are supposed to mean something, um, and if if you don't have the meaning then the positive laws are are just um, um, a form of hawa, a form of whimsy. Um, the, the other, the, no, that was, um, so, yeah, so the, this is the reverse. Oh, about, oh, the iman. Um, it is clear in, in Surah Al-Baqarah in particular, 
that what Surah Al-Baqarah is saying is that there was an amana, there was this 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 trust that was it, that the part and parcel of the iman of the Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, and the iman that all the prophets have come to affirm is to bear this iman and that it is explaining why the Israelites no longer bear the amana and why now Allah is charging Muslims with bearing it and it is clear that Allah so it is talking when it's talking when it talks about al-mu'minun it is talking about those who are now bearing the amana in this context around the prophet Muhammad now what happens when you say I believe but there you do not necessarily bear an amana and that's it, it's sort of the 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 dissonance the, the the cognitive dissonance that you get into so you say I I believe in Allah but if you believe in Allah in the same way that you must believe in a you know in that that there is hereafter that there is a hisab in the same way that believing in Allah entails a certain package you must also believe that Allah offered an amana has an amana and that but what if as a believer as a mu'min or someone who believes in Allah you have no clue what this is what this amana is about and it's not that you don't have it is because the 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 epistemological framework for educating you upon this amana. So, as far as you know, you know, you wonder, is amana just doing paying my zakah? Is that it? Is amana going to eat prayer? Is amana going to Jum'ah prayer if I can? Is amana, um, you know, doing having potlucks in the, the local mosque? Is that the amana? What, what if that? And there is, you really have a breakdown in incoherence. And you don't know what to do with that breakdown in coherence. Because amana is the entire moral edifice that is presented, that was built up by the entire Meccan Quran, and that reaches fruition in Surah Al-Baqarah. And that when Allah addresses the matter of al-birr and tells us that the heart of this amana is this essential concept of birr and that birr itself in, 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 as a concept entails adala and ihsan and you know all the things that we've talked about that that assumes a, a, um, a Quranic education that either you attain because you are sufficiently anchored in the language and 
frame of references of the Quran to read the Quran and pick it up on your own immediately, or because there is an educational educational institutions that get you to that point. We don't have either of these. We are alienated from the language of the Quran. We we the modern even the you know let's let's say an Arab that grew up doesn't know a word of English is sufficiently alienated from the entire moral universe of the Quran and so leave alone everyone else and at the same time we don't have the educational institutions that that allow us to to bridge that gap and that puts us back in the you know the, what do we invest in I mean, it, it, you know, I, this was during, this was uh, in Grace, uh, Grace Wonders. Um, in 2012, um, 2012-2013, I started becoming obsessed with counting how many institutions exist for the study of the Torah and institutions exist for the study of the Bible in the world and comparing it with institutions dedicated to the study of the Quran in the world and frankly I dropped the project after about eight months of research just because of depression I became so depressed because I was counting, even in the most secular places like France, private money has created some, you know, institutions for biblical studies, biblical, you know, and I'm not talking about secular, you know, academic, um, you know, UCLA type schools. I'm, I'm talking about seminaries and, and various think tanks and institutes and so on and so forth. Compared to the Muslim world, where if the if the government doesn't create something, nothing exists. Zilch, zero. And it 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 just makes you then you know in order to because I didn't want to become one of those people who just says oh all Muslims are hypocrites and you know starting calling everyone a kafir um, like people who lose their mind. I, I said, okay, I'm, I'm quit. Uh, you know, I'm this is too depressing. You know, so I, I, for a while I was chasing down. Um, I even had research assistants that helped me w with this. Um, investing, what you invested, says so much about you. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We're back for. Uh, round two. <laughs> so, um, Rami, do you want to come up with your question? We're going to finish here uh, with questions here, and then we'll move to the um, interactive group and others that have been submitted. Inshallah. Um, we talked a, a lot about the covenant in Baqarah and in Christianity and Judaism. The theology of the covenant is kind of uh, like core. Uh, but there doesn't really seem to be a theology like 
the, the covenant doesn't factor so much into uh, it hasn't been theorized or elaborated I think as much in the Islamic tradition when you look up you know in the tafsir it's always about um, was it an actual physical or real occasion was it allegorical um, you know did all of Adam's progeny come out or you know like what was the mythal um, apart I think from you know the Sufis talk about it but is there a reason for that uh, or I mean or am I wrong is there actually a lot written on it Uh, the the question is the in in Judaism and Christianity the idea of the covenant has been its core in both Jewish and Christian theology um, but in the Islamic context Rami is saying that it is not sufficiently uh, theorized and that it is um, um, okay so take a step back um, it is true that Sufis talk about the the um, an amana or a mithaq um, more than others, um, and it is true that in a lot of the tafsir literature you have these um, typically very medieval type discussions about whether this was an actual literal event um, or a figurative thing whether they're there and and some fantastical reports about what the amana was and and so on um, that 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 uh, is amorphic in nature that amorphizes the amana and makes it as if it was a physical thing. Anyway, but the, the mithaq or al-ahd um, or the amana does feature quite prominently in the writings of someone like Ghazali in his Ihyat. It, it features quite prominently in Qadi Abdul-Jabbar's uh, Al-Mughni. Um, uh, it is a consistently discussed theme such as in Otusi's um, uh, book uh, text the Malakut al-Ilahi and, and, and so on but and the discussions are have the earmarks of their carry the earmark of their time they're, they're mostly discussions written in the 10th century 12th century some 14th century and they are not constructed like theological discussions that are 16th century and post 16th century. They're very much constructed like the discussions of uh, that you would expect in 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 this era. Uh, in other words, they are often 
the discussions about whether the the relation of the imana to al-sifat al-ilahiyya to divine attributes uh, discussions about at-takhalluq bi khuluqillah whether um, uh, we have an obligation to uh, reflect these divine attributes to in, in, encompass and um, animate these divine attributes um, whether al-khulq al-hasan is a part of these whether at-tamkeen fil-ard is part of these divine attributes and so on so forth tamkeen fil-ard meaning um, uh, being empowered and and so on in now if you compare the islamic pre-modern medieval dis discussions on the covenant and uh, two christian and jewish discussions written around the same period what is striking is the similarity in style not necessarily in content but in style so um, in Judaism, the covenant the focuses in this context that all the discussions that you find in Judaism and written in the um, uh, pre-Maimonides, and there are not many of them, by the way, but the ones that, you, that are there, it's always about the, the idea of a chosen people and the, the, the promise of... Um, uh, the, the the nature of God's promise to the chosen people, and in Christianity, the 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 covenant is all is always this idea of salvation through Christ. Where you start finding a theoretical working through what the covenant entails. In Christianity, is post Thomas Aquinas, and um, and in Judaism, is post Maimonides, and they the so they become the, the reason we say that in Christianity and Judaism, the covenant is an essential part of Christian and Jewish theology. It is not because of what was written in the medieval period, but it is because of what modernistic scholars said about the medieval period in Christianity and in Judaism. So when you read Christian theologians writing in the 19th century, writing in the 20th century, what they're claiming about their tradition is that the covenant has always been core to the theology. When you go and actually look up the sources that they are citing, you are struck by the fact that they are, they have the same style, they, 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 you're struck by how similar are, they are to Islamic discourses. So you have like the same trajectory in the pre-modern world, both, all three Christians, Jews, and Muslims are talking about the covenant in similar ways. The big difference, the big difference, is that Muslims come at the wake of modernity 
and they are saddled by colonialism and their discourses. And in fact, the way they relate to their historical period, their historical tradition, um, uh, it becomes discombobulated. It, it just it, it loses all coherence. Um, either they just repeat what their medieval sources said, or if they try to theorize, they are basically then taking what Western scholars are saying and reproducing the, these discourses, paraphrasing. And whether they, they, but you can always tell whether they are actually um, citing to these scholars, which some of them did, uh, or they just plagiarizing the material without citing to the scholars. But if you've read the original, you can always tell which scholar they're plagiarizing. Christian theology and Jewish theology were challenged by modernity and insiders to the, to the tradition where did not feel like they had to consistently, um, that their position as insiders is suspect and needed vindication. In other words, why are we committed to this tradition? And they were claiming whatever they wanted to claim about their the, the historical tradition without um, basically their, their own, the narrative on their own history being belonging to someone else because Muslim history, Muslim theology, history of Muslim theology and history of Muslim philosophy and the history of Muslim law um, were all written by non-Muslims in the West, not by Muslims. So this is the critical difference. This is a, it, it is not true that taken out of the, its intellectual history, that the covenant features prominently in Christianity and Judaism, but not in Islam. Um, they're all, they're pretty much on the same level until we get into the modern age. And then w without a doubt what Jewish scholars did with Maimonides' legacy, for instance, is is far more sophisticated than what Muslim scholars did with Ghazali. I mean, until now, Muslims are still stuck on whether it's Ibn Rushd or Ghazali, which is a, a, a very historically idiotic discussion. Whether if we would have gone by the way of Ibn Rushd, Muslims would have been backwards or not. Again, from a historical perspective, makes absolutely no sense whether Ghazali is responsible for why Muslims are backwards. Again, from a historical discussion, from a historical perspective, absolutely makes no sense. And it's like um, kindergarten discourses compared to what you see in um, their Christian and, and Jewish counterparts. I, I don't know, I mean, can you imagine a Jewish scholar writing about whether Maimonides is responsible for a philosophical non-accomplishment in, in Judaism today. I mean, 
people would look at this historical argument like your your causal your causal lines, your analysis of causation, is just absurd and uh, childish. But it happens in the Islamic context all the time. Um, I mean, we actually mean stuck in it. This is amazing because you, as you laid it out, I mean, on the one hand, you can go, God, you know, darn those stupid Muslims, why haven't they done anything? <laughs> on the other hand, it's interesting because it's like, okay, Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas, we know we're both very heavily influenced by the Islamic tradition, as you've told us, right? And yeah. So they were able to go back and make sense of their, their medieval tradition. And if you extend, like, the timeline past us, someone could easily, this is, I think, the challenge before us, is that, okay, you know, well, I mean, Ghazali and Ibn Rushd were, you know, not in our time frame, but if we talk about our time, this, you know, tafsir could be the opportunity for then the Muslim scholars, um, especially the young Muslim scholars, to come forward and say, okay, let's take this and, and look back and make this covenant, you know, sophisticated and meaningful for our time. Uh, I wanna, uh, you know, I want to say that this tafsir just has deals with the Quran, but but you know people don't don't when we talk about post Maimonides intellectual achievements or post Thomas Aquinas intellectual achievements, you are talking about a community, large communities of scholars. The way scholarship develops is it's not there's no one scholar that becomes the hero of everything. That, that that idea is, it is the fact that there is a community of scholars that that literally discourse with one another, that literally engage one another, and that inspires that process of disagreement or it, 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 that's what inspires the development of sophisticated ideas. Any scholar working as as an isolated soul, um, by definition, their accomplishments lack their the the rigor of of interactive intellectual dynamics. So, if you really wanted, you know, ideally, there would be you know a whole community of people that would interact with various ideas and say, you know, you got it wrong here, you got it right here, we, you know, and, and but what happens in, in Muslim communities is that we often are, it, it, we don't have that critical mass of intellectuals engaging. We, we, we still have the phenomena of, you know, Muhammad Abdu that emerges, and Muhammad Abdu would be Muhammad Abdu, or a Kawakibi that would uh, that emerges, or Khairuddin uh, Tunisi would uh, emerge, and, and so they're all isolated figures, not in conversation, actively and dynamically with each other, because of the lack of a critical mass, and because often even the person that emerges. Is a is a one-off. 
you know, it, it's like just one that pushes the envelope. Uh, but it is always easy to ignore the one-offs. And, and I pray that that's not what happens to this tafsir because the lack of a critical mass is a, is a major problem. Yeah, I, you know, the, the fact that we're working towards this tafsir, which is the first original contribution in 40 years, um, is, you know, that in itself is very telling because, as you've said so often, there hasn't been much original thought, you know, developed in our tradition. And it feels like, you know, and we're still in the, you know, in colonialism, so we're still not writing about our own tradition. We still don't own our discourses. And it seems that there isn't anything that, like even the youth are not excited about anything. So these are the things that are hopeful for, for me, not as, because obviously I'm not a scholar and I can, you know, look and point to Joe and Rami and say, okay, guys, this is your job, you know. But it's like exciting for me to think that, um, you know, as a lay person, here's something to do. Do you know, we, we, are, are, we still, so many of our khatibs and our whatever you want to call it, imams or whatever, they still begin every time they talk with a very telling dua uh, that every muhdasa is a bid'ah and every bid'ah finnar, that everything new is a bid'ah and every bid'ah is in hellfire. And and I know that they, they base this on the hadith, which is a, is a different matter. The, the fact that we still consider this to be a hadith is, is a problem. But what do you do with the people that, that start out, their, their, frame of, their, their framework is anything new is problematic, is presumptively a problem. And anything new, I understand if that what they're saying is, you know, if someone wants to make Zohar five rakahs instead of four rakahs, I understand that that's that, that's the muhdas and that that's that's a bad'ah. But people say it. People, the reason a lot of these imams repeat it is because they want they they affirm to themselves the value of intellectual laziness. What they're actually saying, but without confessing it is I am justified in reading the same books that have been read for now centuries, Riyadh al-Salihin and, you know, things like that. At-Targhib al-Targhib al-Zahabi and because anything new is presumptively. So when you say the first new tafsir, there's a very good reason that that there is nothing new, is that we we collectively we still affirm a culture in which um, any new original insight is presumptively uh, a problem, and that's why I never repeat this du'a in in anything that I uh, you know I'm in any of the khutbas and. Uh, partly because it, uh, uh, it's, but, but because it also has become an affirmation of a very problematic moral and intellectual attitude. Well, I'm going to put on my hat as the resident cheerleader, 
um, because I, you know, I think for people like that, um, it's been too long for people who just affirmatively say everything new is a bidah. Um, I feel like we've reached a point of crisis and that we shouldn't listen to that anymore. And now you've presented an alternative where it speaks to heart and mind and soul. It's based on the tradition. Um, it's well documented. You re referenced so many different tafsir, so many different scholars. You know, you've given us an opportunity, like you've added something to our toolkit where now we can go and say no. You know, and obviously what has been happening is not working. You know, we've lost our smart minds, you know, and, and just even the people sitting in this audience with us today, you know, our extended family members, as we've said, that have come, are in, in the top, you know, percentages of brainiacs and, and, and pious souls. And I, this is where I find hope, is that people who come and, and they hear something that is stimulating intellectually and also exciting and inspiring inside. Like this is what can be the hope for the future. So it, when you explain to us, okay, the difference, because the covenant is not articulated so prominently in the Islamic tradition versus the Christian and Jewish tradition, it seems to me it's just because it hasn't been done by, you know, and it can easily be done now, you know, or more easily be done by our young scholars who now have been empowered and given license from these halakas to say it's in your hand. You, you take this and God has given you license to be on the front lines of, you know, of intellect and beauty and reasonableness and, and here you go. Let's, you know, so um, this is where I find my hope and, and I hope that others feel that as well because it, it's, I didn't know this before. It's like, okay, someone just needs to, Rami, you, this is your question. <laughs> you got to develop the covenant. But it's this is it's beautiful and it's and it's hopeful and it's exciting. So sorry for my two cents. I'm I'm not doing the hard work. I'm just like <laughs> Rami, go for it. Um, okay, did you have another question, Shri? Um, a lot of the majority of modern psychology is not even modern psychology, but psychology from the beginning was built within the infrastructure of capitalism. And there's a lot of critics in psychological arenas that, that critique this. That basically, one of the main problems is that we compartmentalize people and treat them as if their problems are just individual without looking at the larger society and reduce everything to a list of symptoms and then treat those symptoms. And that's essentially what these different psychological disorders are. are. And so, and even the fact that whether we call them disorders or not, I mean, if, if someone is suffering in a certain way, whether it's depression or an anxiety disorder, um, but they're in a society that is fundamentally ill, can you even really call that a disorder? But all of that said, the. My main question is, in the context of what we have learned so far with the, the Meccan surahs in this surah, and what the Muslims were going through in terms of persecution and torture, and they, they were not obviously in, in healthy psychological conditions. Yet, repeatedly, the Qur'anic message that's coming to them 
is don't abandon your moral obligation. So when I see a lot of Islamic psychology programs, because I mean they're sprouting up everywhere and I think that the majority of them kind of try to introduce Ertaka into the, the paradigm of modern psychology. Do you, number one, do you think that they're compatible? Do you think that psychology as it is practiced today is is compatible with with what with Urtika and what we learn and do you think that that actually is it right to assume that that can be a treatment to psychological disorders and number two do you think that Islamically I mean if we're talking about Islamic psychology are we putting the cart before the horse because it seems like through the Quran Allah is telling us no, what needs to come first is your covenant. Does that mean that we have to be willing to sacrifice our mental health for the sake of the covenant? No. Um. I mean, I I don't I I, I don't know. Uh, this is something that has to be taken up by um, by by people by someone like you, who, you know, people who can actually delve into the whole phenomena of Islamized psychology and whether they present meaningful alternatives and so on. Um, all, all I can say is that in, you know, in, um, uh, so, okay, the, the, um, first, this, this issue of, of mental health and, and the covenant, um, do we sacrifice mental health and, and because of the covenant? If I am raised with the idea that my meaning, my, the way I relate to myself, is intimately interconnected with my understanding of my maker and what my maker expects of me and wants from me. Um, and that, as Surah Al-Baqarah reminds us, that that if I uh, if I'm committed to my maker, my maker is committed to me, and that Allah is ever present and that Allah is ever close. Uh, does that sacrifice mental health? I mean, you know, it's like if you if if you take a if you are conditioning people to the idea of a commitment, an idea of a cause, an idea of a purpose, an idea of a goal, uh, that I think it's a stretch to say that you sacrifice mental health. What you are you are sacrificing is a lot of times you are you are you are cannot consider your own comfort without considering 
the way that your comfort relates to many other factors. There was a, you know, a period of time when I was curious about psychology enough that I actually went um, to, um, well, there was one part that, that wasn't curiosity, but another part that was curiosity. Um, uh, so I, I actually w w would go and, and visited several counselors or psychologists. And I found the way that I was raised um, very alien to them and what they were telling me very alien to me by always constantly emphasizing uh, how does that make you feel and um, the, the, the focus. I remember one psychologist uh, at Yale, I was uh, des describing to her uh, how much my mother uh, sacrificed uh, for her children. And she made a comment um, that effectively what she was saying is that um, basically that there are some people who uh, addicted to a form of self-punishment that she's by sacrificing so much for her children she's punishing herself that you know and of course you know to to emphasize that you sacrifice for and it, it, it is a whole philosophical outlook and of course eventually I, I stopped doing it because you know I was re reading enough I started out first like most people reading uh, Freud and then got sick of Freud um, you know he's a good entertainment but that's it and then you you elevate a bit to Jungian philosophy and um, and then, you know, Kierkegaard came in at some point. But anyway, and then you, you start going to psychologists and you start arguing with them philosophically. And then, of course, th that doesn't make for... Um, yeah, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, anyway. So... No, I don't think that you can put it as sacrificing mental health. You don't sacrifice mental health. You, 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 it is, in fact, uh, I believe, in my experience, it, it is when it, the times that I felt sorry for myself and was very tempted to sink into depression, uh, it, the the ethic that well you cannot indulge because what you do relates to so many other people and that you owe obligations to so many other people and that um, it is just simply not in your book to do what it, it, it is it is not sacrificing mental health it is often grabbing yourself by by, by the bootstraps and just 
um, but you know, Islamic psychology and, and the whole concept of an irtaqa and whether whether it the little that I've read of what Muslim psychologists have written. Again, the thing that aggravates me the most about it is that it is not theoretically sophisticated. That, in other words, if I if I am measuring it by by the yardstick of a good academic book, like you know, I go and I get a, a good academic study on psychology. It is layered. It is sophisticated. It is nuanced. Uh, it is a journey into arguments and counter-arguments and so on. What I read written by Muslims is not like that. It, what I've read written by Muslims, it's more the ghetto phenomenon. Like, it's the, the, the phenomenon of, of hodgepodge. In, in Arabic, we call it talzi. Uh, you know, you take something from here and you slap something on here and slap something on here. And there is no... There, there is no serious theoretical or, or analytical... If this was peer-reviewed, it wouldn't pass muster. If this was something that was offered to be published by an academic press, by Cambridge or Oxford or something, it would not be published. That's the problem I have. As a non-specialist, that I want Muslims to write things that academic presses would say, because I know that they're, they, I've read things written from especially a Christian and Jewish perspective, um, counseling, Christian counseling, and it's far more sophisticated than the stuff that I've read written by Muslims. I've read a couple of books on a a, a Jewish take on modern psychology, and it, it it one of the the books in particular I have in my library. It was a journey through all the major schools of psychology that developed in the West, and contributions of Jews that were non-Jewish. So that that author was very critical of Jewish psychologists who he argued made non-Jewish contributions. And his argument how they could have made Jewish contributions to the field of psychology. One of the biggest people he criticizes Freud himself, which he calls him calls him a self-hating Jew. And you know, he says that if, if if Freud would have anchored himself in the Jewish tradition, his contributions would have been far more significant, far more meaningful. And you feel like you've taken a journey in in that is philosophically satisfying, historically satisfying. Uh, just satisfying to you as an intellectual. It, it is, and it was published, I, I don't remember, it was either, I think it was Oxford, if I remember serves me right. Um, and it's a very thick book. I mean, it's it's about 500 pages or so. Nothing like that exists. Why? My, my question is, why? Why? I mean, it is. It, it's. It's a bit absurd. Why is it that it, it is always when you find something Islamic, it is sort of like in in these like, you know, under the table publications uh, um, that. Um, I don't know. I mean, so that's my skepticism. Now, 
but you know, I I, I hope that people who can actually who specialize in this field can address it. Last call for in-person questions before we move on to the next. Anybody? Close. Extended We've family? Enough. <laughs> Go on. All right. We've heard enough from them. <laughs> okay. So um, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We got a lot more than we actually will get through. Um, Rami did an incredible job of um, <clears throat> putting things together, cleaning them up. So um, I think we have some really, really great questions. Um, first one, could the Sheikh please explain verse 259 as it was not covered during the Holocaust? And I was excited to hear his explanation. You didn't cover it? So if this was because you were rushing, <laughs> you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, I, d I did skip it. Ah. Yeah. See, people are paying attention. So uh, yeah. You tried to sneak past that one. Um, okay. Um, let me see if I... Yeah. Okay. There is... I'll, I'll take this, this now it's a, I'm doing a, a minute of see if so. Okay. There are a number of traditions. Um, interestingly though, m many of them are um, again, within the rubric of the Ezraelite traditions in Israeliyat because they were either traditions that mirror something found in the Talmudic uh, tradition, and not, not the Torah, but the Talmud, uh, or because they, are, they were transmitted by... Uh, Jewish converts to Islam, um, and but in this situation, there were Jewish converts that transmitted something that was very close to what's in the Talmudic tradition, uh, and and typically in these traditions, they are then attributed to either the Prophet والسلام, or one of the companions of the Prophet who um, um, who relates the, the the Talmudic narrative and the narratives on this um, um, where what location um, there's nothing reliable uh, you know some say that this was in in what is part of today's Iraq, some say it was a part of today's Sham or Syria. Um, there's it's a, a couple of traditions say now that this was uh, in part of today's Yemen. But, and who precisely this person that was passing other than the claim that he was um, 
an Ezraite. Um, that's it. But that the narrative refers to an individual who um, goes to an abandoned town after its inhabitant has long deserted it and that he now again in the depending on the what version you're looking at this town was it a a town that has been sacked by the persians uh, in the destruction of the second temple was it a town that was pre the persian invasion and was uh, sacked by the romans as some traditions say was it a town that was not sacked by the Persians or Romans, but simply a deserted town for no good reasons? Again, you get different versions. But anyway, that so the he either, uh, depending on the version you're reading, he looks at this town at skeletons of people that were killed in the invasion, or that he looks at grave sites of people that had been buried in this town, but the inhabitants of the town have moved on, and so the grave sites are sort of decrepit and falling apart, and wonders whether, how is it possible, or questions, or, and most of the, the reports say that this was a, a pious person who was taken by a moment of doubt. And uh, as it says, then he was effectively died for a hundred years uh, only to be resurrected after a hundred years. And the way that he realizes that he had died for that long is he looks at his the skeleton of his donkey and sees, and of course his, his food is long... Um, uh, deteriorated, but the the skeleton of his donkey tells him that he has been, that a long time has passed. Um, and that this is a, a demonstration of God's power of resurrection. Now, of course, this reminds us very much of the story of the cave, which we've talked about. A, a, a very similar narrative. Several because nothing reliable has been transmitted that tells us that in fact that it is referring to any of the what these reports said that it's referring to in other words a Talmudic story um, gave the story, and it's this especially, you find this in the Sufi tradition and also in the Razi, uh, Zamakhshari, modern, modern interpreters like Muhammad Abdul, um, understood it in a far more, far more allegorical way, that or 
as Muhammad Abdul says that when Allah refers to an event and says, look at this person, such and such happened to them, but doesn't tell us anything about this person, doesn't give us any details, doesn't reference any historical event, then part of Allah's message is that the historical event is not important. But rather, all the ways that death overcomes a person, whether physical death or as Sufis always say, that um, especially this expression, خَوِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ عُرُوشِهَا that خَوِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ عُرُوشِهَا is a very powerful expression. It's, it is like saying, um, look, it, it is completely its foundations have been laid bare and there is nothing there. That expression has even entered in literary usage to refer to a state of emptiness, um, a state where whether it's moral emptiness, emotional emptiness, intellectual emptiness, you can use that expression in all these contexts. And so, someone like Muhammad Abdul says that, and also uh, Sayyid Qub has a very similar argument, and I think he probably picked it up from Muhammad Abdul. It says that this allegorical narrative, the reason the history is not important, is that it is not just a town that could be as if abandoned and emptied of all meaning. But the, the inner being of a human being itself can be completely emptied of all meaning. And Allah is reminding you that is, and that is why, look, uh, look at the, this ayah is sandwiched between an ayah before it and an ayah after it that talks about Ibrahim, salam. And the, and Ibrahim's, um, self, Ibrahim's, um, whether literal or figurative, uh, Ibrahim's doubts and Ibrahim's growth into conviction and belief. And uh, this is not coincidental, but rather the, the critical issue is what doubt could make of a human being. You could be plagued by doubt, and that doubt becomes an instrumentality for growth, for inhabiting the in uninhabited. Or doubt could empty your soul and heart of all meaning, so your 
your function as a human being becomes a doubting human being. What is it that you do? I doubt. I am not sure of anything. And when you are not sure of anything, you become like that decayed donkey or rotted food. There's, there's a being, but it's empty of real life. Um, that's basically the... So, you know, if you look at... Um, Tabari goes through all the, the um, Israelite traditions. Ibn Kathir has a shorter uh, review. But even someone like Tafsir al-Baghawi, who's, you know, is, or um, um, someone like Shukani, they, they, it was prominent to them that Allah did not give us any indicators as to who this person is, where, how, when, as if it is entirely irrelevant. And all those who found, who said, well, it's referring to this narrative, even if it's put in the mouth of the Prophet, they only, they, they found parallels to in the Talmudic tradition by Shubha. In other words, they found a narrative that seemed similar in the Talmud, and the Talmud is full of narratives like this, by the way. And they say, oh, well, it must, it must be it. But, but perhaps that misses the entire point. The entire point is this critical phrase, al-khawi ala urushiha. Something where the foundations are laid bare. What is, insi- what is inside your, your own town? Your, 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 what inhabits you? Um, I mean, um, I've, years ago, when Grace was, you know, she, she asked this question that jogged my memory as to the journey. Um, my, the image that I often, that I sort of emerged about this area in particular is, there are so many people. Um, if you, if there, if we could take a, a visual picture of what is in, inhabits the heart, and it would be as if abandoned homes and caucuses of living things. Um, they 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 wake up, they go someplace, work, they come back from work. They are on autopilot. They're doing function after function after function, but there's nothing there. And as opposed to a town that is bristling with life, um, with, with everything that represents life, which in the Quranic outlook is always meaning, Life is meaning. Um, so, good catch. <laughs> that better have been the only one. Okay. Um, second question. 
Uh, does no compulsion in religion deal with compulsion in religious practice or belief, as well as compulsion in entering and leaving the religion? How would this relate to the use of shame and exclusion in Muslim spaces to pressure Muslims to behave in certain ways and believe in a certain school of doctrine? Does the law of no compulsion in religion relate to spiritual abuse that is sometimes used in families and mosques? Yeah. You know, la ikrahiddin qattabayan arushu min alghay. The in order to to unpack la ikrahiddin um when you you complete the phrase qattabayan arushu min alghay. The path of what is right is clear and the path of what is wrong is clear. It is a rushd. A rushd is what is what is correct. A rushd is what is rational. A rushd is what is... All, all of this is encompassed by the word rushd, by the way. Uh, rushd is what is reasonable. Rushd is what is balanced. Rushd is what is fair. Rushd is what is just. That expression, rushd, is like saying, you know, what is fundamentally good. Al-ghay is what is false, what's a lie, what's unfair, what's dishonest, what's deceitful, you know, a whole set of qualities. And so, la ikraha fi din al-ghay. It's as if it is not the deen that our modern mind brackets religion and then says, well, this is religion and this is everything else. We compartmentalize. Uh, it, it is noteworthy that a deen here is equated with rushd which is like all affairs of life that um, so when I'll, we go back to you know we talked about the, in, the intent of, of the author Allah reminds us when Allah wants to say whoever wants to believe believes and whoever doesn't want to believe doesn't believe Allah says, says so clearly and repeatedly in the Quran so this is as belief and as opposed to not belief. But when the Quran condemns ikrah, it is like saying, if you have deen, if you have deen in you, you will not practice coercion. This is different from the way the legalistic mind understood it, because the legalistic mind wanted to, to, to know what positive actual laws can be derived from it. But a moralistic mind would understand la ikraf deen if it's, if it's seen as describing a moral character. It is telling you if you have deen in you, coercion is is not a good state of affair. 
you know, it's like if I tell tell you لا كذب في الدين. There is no lying in religion. How would you understand it? It, it you would understand it that if you have religion, you shouldn't lie. But the way the the, the legalistic frame of mind biases the way that we understand this phrase. So. It is the ethic that coercion is not the path of a sirat. That it, coercion it, it is as as a way of obtaining results is to say the least suspect. So. The things that you you mention, when we insist on, when we use, uh, even the, the the very ethic of authoritarianism and despotism and censorship, and you know, um, so I haven't encountered in any Muslim context. When people are talking about, let's say, whether we can control what people say on our uh, in our khutbahs or not, right? I have never encountered Muslims say, "Well, Allah has taught us the ethic of non-coercion, so how does this mix into our considerations?" Rather, it is never discussed. It it, it is as if. It is as if we have Quranic prescriptions, but other than the 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 allegorical examples that were given to us by medieval jurists uh, manifesting these Quranic prescriptions in specific laws, our intellect no longer relates to these Quranic prescriptions. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't, they don't address our soul anymore. While la ikraf al-deen affects, if Allah is telling me this, it affects the way I relate to my wife, it affects the way I relate to my children, it affects the way I relate to my students, it affects the way I relate even, you know, uh, recently, I had to turn in a student for missing too much, too much uh, class, uh, too many days of class, um, to the dean. Um, I sat and thought about la ikraha fi dean as I was writing the email to the dean, telling the dean about the student missing too many days of class whether that's coercion that I have a right to practice getting the student in trouble or not. That, I think, Allahu A'lam, but that, I think, is a far more authentic understanding of la ikraf al-deen than what we're accustomed to. I, I, I mean, my, I've never in 
we've been married to, you told me 27 years? I think almost 27. 27? Coming up on 27. Yeah, 27. I've never told Grace what to wear, what to eat, what to say, what. And it is not where, the issue is not whether Grace would allow me to or not allow me to. She wouldn't, but I think. <laughs> but um, I'm scared of her most of the time. Uh, no, um, Okay, um, that's another matter. Um, uh, it's uh, don't it, lie. <laughs> it's let the deed. I mean, I I can't relate to. I can't relate to 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 human beings from Iqra. Um. And and you know maybe sometimes especially when. Um, you know, I've, I question myself whether maybe I should have had more, a little bit more coercion with my sons. Um, I don't know. But it, it was always very difficult for me to even exercise coercive authority. Uh, and again, it's because Iqlaikrafidin torments me. It interrogates me consistently. Okay, I, um, we have two, a couple of questions that um, have to do with um, usury and finance. So I'm going to actually um, put them together so you can answer as, as you like since we have a lot of questions. Maybe this will help um, maximize the time. So the first one is, is there a connection between usury and the obsession with profits being satanic and shaitan promising poverty? There is an argument that one of the greatest causes of inequality in wealth in Western countries is due to the use of debt and interest rates. Um, is the Quran saying that this financial system and moral precedent of taking advantage of people's needs leads to poverty, not just for particular individuals, but for the majority of society? Um, and then the second question is, one of the well-known scholars of Islamic finance has defined riba as usury amounting to economic exploitation rather than simple increase, particularly of the modest kind provided for according to modern banking practice. Is this correct? Does RIBA refer only to high interest rates and not low interest rates? And what do we do with a small amount of money given to us by banks in the form of interest? Um, and then related to that is the whole idea of fintech um, or cryptocurrency, non-fungible tokens, decentralized finance, which is still new and still little understood. To that end, what is the main moral principle in verses 275 to 281 that we can use to navigate new financial practices and instruments? And I guess as an aside, I would share this, this email that we got also um, that uh, one of your students had asked um, or had alerted us to the Indonesian Lama Council issuing a fatwa on the prohibition of cryptocurrency and that the argument of the council is very simple. It's based on uncertainty and gambling and was wondering what your opinion was on cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum and the such and the like. So. Uh, okay, so the first part of the question about um, obsession uh, with profits being yeah. satanic and shaitan promising. You know, a lot of people actually they don't know that um, in in the history of the common law and in the history of Jewish law 
these two, there have been a, a very rich discussion on precisely what usury is and the prohibition against usury. And what, and the, if I would sum it up in both, it is an increase in money that is exploitative, um, that basically takes advantage of the needs of others to further their position of disempowerment. Now, what happened with modern financial institutions is that in the common law system and as well in the civil law system, the prohibition against usury, like the concept of pornography, uh, like the concept in American law of legal entrapment, became basically meaningless. Um, although the Constitution prohibits uh, entrapment, but the, the way the, the entrapment law had been interpreted, it, it has become entirely meaningless. Um, uh, same thing with pornography. You know, till now, uh, being obscene, it, you can you. It, the law prohibits obscenity, but the vast majority of what is pornographic material is not deemed obscene. And till now, technically speaking, if you wanted to go to the common law tradition or uh, the 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 non-statutory law um, exacting usurious interest rates is not allowed. The problem is that there the statutes and regulations basically have allowed um, institutions to. Uh, set interest rates that sometimes are extremely high. Um, when I go back to the historical dynamic, now of course, yeah, the, the uh, uh, Muslim jurists developed this whole thing about riba al-fadl, riba al-nasi'a, and we, you know, it's a, that's a whole, and, and we could have a very interesting discussion focused on legal history and the history of the the discourses on ribal fadl and ribal nasia and muslim jurists generally speaking were animated by two considerations some of them were animated by a very literal understanding of the tradition that you can't trade something for something of the same nature for an increase and so they, they obsess about, well, is this equal to this? Is this the same thing as this? So I, I can't give you $10, so for, and in return you give me $11. But 
the two main considerations that animated Muslim Jewish, other than the, the, the sort of very literal understanding of, of two things of same nature, is prophets for no, without labor. And increase, increase on, on, or financial increases that represent exploitation of the needs of others. So, Muslim Jews were definitely suspect of the idea of prophets without labor. And that is why some of them in the classical tradition even prohibited rentals. That, you know, you're renting the house. Well, what labor, the, the reason what, what labor goes into that. And it took a long evolutionary process until the Hanafis eventually accepted rentals and said, well, you know, uh, it, it, financial institutions have to force us to allow to accept the idea that um, you can't always expect profit with labor or you can't tie the two together without it becoming a serious financial obstacle. The, the part that um, became is they struggled with this element of exploitation. Can we, how, how do we define exploitation when we are talking about, you know, financial transactions that could take place any place in the Muslim world, you know, whether in, in Egypt or in Medina or in Mecca or in Damascus or in Baghdad, and with imperfect information about who are coming to these financial uh, in, in transactions. So the way that then they try to approach it is to set rules for uh, increase that would represent the increase in debts. I think if what the Quran you go back to the Quranic, uh, what the Quran was responding to, and what the Quran was responding to was uh, exploitative institutions that not just took advantage of people's need, but that it, um, that f embedded people in their position of economic disadvantage. That if you are economically disadvantaged, you will remain economically disadvantaged. Now, if you put aside the technicalities of law, and again, I think it is important that we put aside the technicalities of law, and we go back to Quranic morality, what was the Quran trying to achieve morally? not the, the mechanics of law, the Qur'an was clearly, whether when it talks about, you know, you ought to lend people money and just be patient with them, 
you ought to lend people money and 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 forgive it you are you have to take care of the orphans and the poor and the wayfarer and so on or, or it talks about that you know if if you 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 can't insult the dignity of people or the great people and if you go to the great people then it's better not to you know then keep your money to yourself what the Quran was consistently doing morally speaking is that to uplift people's dignity and their social mobility their their ability to come out of a position of a disadvantaged human being now why do I, why am i emphasizing this because from that perspective any financial arrangement that keeps the poor stuck to their poverty is immoral from a Quranic perspective regardless of you know the technicalities so okay so we make these financial Islamic banking arrangements I mean I've, I've worked on several cases where I've testified as an expert witness in Islamic banking cases and you know we structure it where you buy the home and I buy the home and, and then you know I'm effectively buying the home back from you but ultimately I end up in, in the couple of cases that I've worked on and actually there were more than a couple but anyway if it is that I'm end up buying the home back or for far more than you've bought it and I am bearing a much higher risk than if I would have gotten a regular mortgage how is that how is that consistent with the morality of the prohibition forget the, the, the technicalities of it without question much of the interest rate that is charged by credit cards is usurious because once you are in debt you will remain in debt and it is a whole structure of the of, of, of the system is, is structured to keep you in in that cycle from an Islamic perspective it is immoral but so is any other institution that keeps you know what in Arabic parlance they say the basha a basha you know the, the, what keeps the the um, you know the master a master and the the master is, is always dealing from a position of benevolence uh, choice benevolence towards the 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 dependent if we would get beyond the mechanics of the law to the moral message of the Quran I think we would start seeing things far more clearly so listen among the things that there are there, there in, in the modern work environment in so many institutions in the West there is 
I'm not saying that the West has solved the problem of sexual harassment by, by far, and not even close, but uh, what I'm saying is that there are many, there are situations that I've witnessed in Egypt and in some other Arab countries where the employee is at so disempowered that there is no way to really redress sexual exploitation by the employer. I've had a student once from Iran came to me, told me a story that about her, what happened to her by her employer who forced her to do horrible things because if if she she had no recourse and if she would have left the job it would have had horrible consequences for her children so she was forced into a very degrading situation i've seen that in egypt i've seen that in other muslim countries and when i compare this to the relative relative empowerment of employees in the West who know their rights, who know that they can go to an attorney and can, you know, sue their attorney and 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 and, and, and etc. Sue their employer. And believe believe me, I look at this as hardcore as as. It, in, in its very core as relevant to what the Quran says about riba. Far more than the technical issue of interest rate and that, because it, it is talking about who's exploiting who. Mm -hmm. And it as a Muslim it it of course it it you know it, it, the fact that it just shows how far we've drifted from the morality of the Quran. The, the Quran is saying, don't leave people in a disempowered position across the board. Don't put people at the mercy of other people. That's what it's all about. Because there are very nice people, but there are also very evil people. And if evil people can hurt those that depend on them without recourse and you know it is not enough to say well oh they could go to the police yeah but what if you suffer from racial and class and gender divisions that makes going to the police entirely ineffective that is not consistent with the morality of the Quran and the sooner we get our children to understand that the Quran was about a moral project, not a legal project, to teach our children to, to be offended by injustice the way that the Quran was offended by injustice. I think the, 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 the you know, maybe Allah's Allah's disappointment with us. Maybe it will start being lifted. You know, maybe Allah will. You know, I've often wondered why do other societies just so happen to get, you know, the the U.S. 
if the U.S. didn't have George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as you know among their first presidents, the the entire U.S. experiment would have gone to hell. Um, there were a lot of authoritarians, but there were enough level heads, level headed people. Look at Israel. This I can't, you know, and the founding fathers of Israel, and of course women as well. Um, why did they get people who were for their purposes on the right moral trajectory for their purposes with everything they've done to to others while we get you know the likes of leaders that we get in the Muslim world um, you know can you imagine if if the United States would have had Abdul Nasser as its founding father or Sadat or Mubarak I can assure you nothing would have become to of the United States. You know, people make a difference. The, the right person, the right historical moment makes a difference. And this is the part where I, I you know, I, I just... It just can't be a simple coincidence. It can't be. It can't be. Uh, you know, Moshe Dayan grew up in... In, right in the in the house, right in front of Abdul Nasser, they they lived across the street from each other in Egypt. The Moshe Dayan grew up in Egypt, and what Moshe Dayan did for Israel and his morality vis-a-vis -vis his people, as opposed to Abdul Nasser's morality vis-a-vis -vis his people, Moshe Dayan's Jewishness, as opposed to Abdul Nasser's absolute lack of Islamic anything. It just, I don't know, you have to reflect on these things. You can't just let them pass. Okay, so we're getting close to 9.30. We still have a lot of really good questions. Let's go for a bit haram. I mean, <laughs> the, the people here took up all the time. Or we could um, consider <laughs> extending to another session if we want. No. No? You want to do another Surah Al-Baqarah session? I don't... No. No? We have a lot of questions. Okay. Uh, okay. So, well, if I, you want if you want next Saturday to be another quick Q&A, it's okay. Uh, I, why don't we... Wait, we can discuss it offline, so maybe okay. we can see also how many more um, we can get through. If, if the people here want another Q&A session, I'm fine with it. Or if, if you well, guys think... Why, why, don't we, why don't we talk about it? Yeah, you guys will. You guys what, decide and just let me know. We have. <laughs> Okay, um, so why, why don't I read, okay, this one maybe is one you can answer quickly and then we'll, we'll see if we have time for some givens. Oh, I know, here's, we're going to do this way. I'm going to read you three questions. You decide which one you want to answer. They're all a little bit different. Okay, um, one, I appreciated your emphasis on the moral insignificance of history as a dominant theme in Baqarah. The transcendental status of morality is what appealed to me most about Islam. Could you please comment on the concept of al-maruf in the context of the moral insignificance of history? This is something that has always puzzled me. Okay, and then this, this next one. Um, is there a logic to the order of legal rulings addressed in the surah? 
or is it based on the chronological order for which these issues arose? And is there a reason that Surah Baqarah comes second in the Quran after the Fatiha? And then this third question takes us into a different sphere, which is kind of interesting. What is it about Surah Baqarah specifically that makes it hard for magicians to defeat? They rip out this surah when desecrating the Quran to perform evil rituals. And why do all Raqis refer, or people give Raqis, right? Refer to hadith that instruct for recitation of Baqarah daily to make evil flee from the home and break seer or black magic that can't be found. Are these narrations authentic? What is your opinion on sheikhs that say, well, you've recited Baqarah and said Bismillah when closing the door, so no evil is in your house. Case closed. Wow, well, they're all good. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We have a lot of really good questions. So. Yeah. Um, or if you okay. want to do all three and call it a night. Um, okay, so... I can't resist the temptation to address the the, the third one. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, okay, so there there is a um, 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 let me see if I if I actually had noted. Sometimes I had copied these quotes from um, texts, but I never know if, I, if if not, then I'll just have to paraphrase it. Yeah, so I I, I okay. Um, Okay, so um, we uh, uh, um, first about the, I'll I'll take it from sort of a, a strange story, black magi magicians and why they um, uh, Surah Al-Baqarah actually my we know that around verse. 102 um, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is talking about um, Sulaiman salam and um, and um, the the issue of of magic um, now there there is a there is a long history to that a lot of black magic is anchored on the mythology that it, it, it even the symbols that are written um, that are supposed to um, um, uh, um, what is it? what is the word for when you when you call Summon. Uh, that's, uh, uh, what is it? Summon. Yeah, that are supposed to summon uh, demonic entities. They have a pre-Islamic history. Now, how far this history goes, um, how how deep into pre-Islamic history it is, 
whether in fact it, it goes all the way back to the time of the Prophet Sulaiman or not, uh, Allah Alam. But the belief is is that a lot of these symbols originated from the language that Sulaiman mastered, that which he used to communicate with the jinn. Um, this. And these symbols, as I said, they, they're, remar- I mean, uh, they're remarkably old. Allah Adam, especially in the, the black magic that emerges from the Near East part of the world. Um, now, in, in Islam, we don't believe that, it, it, there, as I said, that there are various reports about whether this was a text hidden under the, the, the throne of Sulaiman salam, whether this was, the, the, you know, go back to the part of the tafsir where I talked about, um, I think it's verse 102. And um, so the, the way that developed in, um, um, is that because Surah Al-Baqarah is the surah that specifically addresses the, what is often in black marriage known as the Solomonic key, um, the, the, the key to be able to summon demonic entities. So, and the fact that in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah puts the power with God, not with demons. And Allah describes Kaid al-Shaytan, the, the, the powers of the demonic, as weak. Um, that is specifically why the practice of defacing Surah Al-Baqarah emerged. That you are, you start out by denouncing the principle of divine supremacy over your magic or over your ta'wizat, um, uh, your um, Near what do you call that? What is that? Like seals? Like the the, uh, the charting? The, they do? The, the signs, the, 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 the sort of the, the signs and symbols that you're writing that are then to call upon the powers of the demonic. So you, you, you start with, with desecrating that. And so in, in older, in, um, in books of black magic that um, um, that even were written before the Kabirit al-Ahmar and so on, the 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 or the um, uh, you actually didn't desecrate the entire Surah al-Baqarah, but you would desecrate um, the beginning of Surah al-Baqarah up to verse one o two and the end of Surah al-Baqarah. And the end of Surah Al-Baqarah, because of Ayat al-Kursi, 
which was believed to have anti or, or have powers of compelling demons uh, or scaring or limiting or controlling demons so now so that's why the the black magician so they in, in in at least in the old tradition they would actually what mattered is that because getting a copy of surah al-baqarah was you know you had to buying the quran was expensive a written copy of the quran was expensive and often quran was sold in parchment so you just bought parchments of the quran not the entire quran so they would buy these parchments these parts of the quran and they would desecrate that and that was supposed to um as to the reciting surah al-baqarah i i i don't think any of the traditions about reciting surah al-baqarah as having especially compulsory powers over demons are uh, of high reliability um and I'm, I'm i know this will disappoint a lot of people who um you know read surah al-baqarah with great confidence that all is solved um in my humble view and allah alam is that surah al-baqarah is as powerful as the rest of the quran um uh, i don't deny that there are parts especially the parts that, that are chosen in ruqyas that specifically remind once remind or that evoke Allah's powers over the demonic and that these are the most relevant parts but just the idea that Surah Al-Baqarah itself none of the traditions are are sufficiently reliable that we can say that this is and uh, but there is no and I, and I wonder I mean I have nothing to base this on other than just my I'm wondering I wonder whether the way that this emerged had something to do with the near immediate hostility of occult practices, uh, occult practitioners, to what the Quran said about uh, Nabi Sulaiman salam, and that, and, and especially, وَمَا كَفَرُ Sulaiman. That it, it is remarkable, but it, it, it's a very big part of occult lore with the idea reaffirmed by the Bible that Suleiman had lost his way and has succumbed to demonic influences. And that was by occult practitioners was was a, and the Quran comes and pours like cold water over this and says, Nope, not true. Suleiman was not just a king and he, he all the things that the Bible accuses him of are not true and he never succumbed to demonic powers. And from the earliest um evidence we have, occult practitioners absolutely just hated that, just thought and, and mocked it and and, um, and it became very quickly part of what they incorporated in their defacement of the Quran. And so I wonder whether what the hadith that emerged 
was in response to that. Um, I much prefer if someone has an issue like that, um, you know, uh, when when you're when you're young academic worrying worrying about your career, you didn't talk about things like that. It's a sign that now you're old and you no longer care. Um, when you just talk about it and you just don't care who says what. Um, if you have a problem with something like that, I would get a good text of a rukya. Um And that's what I would focus on rather than just entire surat al-Baqarah. Okay, so what oh, were okay. the... So, sorry, um, we have to backtrack a little bit because we skipped um, the second part of the financial question, which had to do with cryptocurrency. Oh, so, oh, the yeah. cryptocurrency. Oh, I completely forgot about oh, so just, that. Again, just okay. do you want me to... Uh, okay, no, I, I remember. So, okay. So, uh, let me just... In Indonesia, there, there's a, like this whole... There was this whole discussion about cryptocurrency. And then the effect uh, was... A very well-known fatwa was issued by a group of ulama that prohibited cryptocurrency. And the fatwa itself doesn't say much other than um, that it is gharar. And gharar means speculation. You know, initially, the the response to the, the stock market, um, there's a famous Azhari fatwa um, that Um, I don't remember whether it was 1930s or 1940s that said that the stock market is haram because of gharar. And then eventually it, it was dropped. Or And I don't claim that I really understand the world of cryptocurrency that well, but so it, it, it requires um, but from what I understand, it would seem to me um, that so much of modern currency, which doesn't, obviously we all know, doesn't rely on a gold standard, and it really, so much of modern currency, it, it privileges a, a, uh, the currency backed up by former colonial powers, particularly the dollar and the euro. For a short while, it was the yen was also part of of it, but you know because of but I don't think the yen is now. And when we say this. It's not just that a government says, I am supporting the value of this currency. In other words, a government is saying, I promise that when you, that I am absolutely sort of the, the ultimate um, fallback for the value of this currency. But... A lot of people ignore the fact that to our modern day age, 
a lot of the uh, all the derivative currencies, all the currencies that are you find in different countries of the world, um, ultimately rely on the power of the dollar as a dominant uh, currency in the world. And so the, our modern currency system clearly privileges a particular superpower and former colonial powers in Europe. Um, a lot of things, if you wanted to buy, if you want to export or import anything, you, you have to do it in hard currency. You, you can't do it in your local currency. So in, in, in many ways, local currencies are sort of good fictions for local populations. But if you get beyond your local populations and go to the world market, it is hard currency, meaning the, the currency of superpowers that actually matters not your little local currency. Now, why do I say this? Because uh, currency itself it is, A, based on a number of fictions, and B, it, we cannot ignore the fact that they privilege centers of power. And that is why if you notice, the, the United States goes at great length to very aggressively combat any country that says, I will start doing the business in other than the dollar. Um, and this is, again, just part of, our, of the, the world we live in. Now, the stock market itself, although there is an underlying company that is supposed to be the basis of, of the stocks that you sell and buy, um, there have been a lot of studies about to what extent it, the underlying company actually really matters, uh, rather than a whole bunch of complicated systems of fictions that create the price of these stocks. and. Um, so, if it is the idea of gharar, then that's invalid. Because the, the same gharar exists in stocks, the same gharar exists in currency that exists in cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency has ha, had a potential of democratizing taking some of the, the, the power out of traditional monopolistic centers of economic power. Unfortunately, although cryptocurrency seems to be uh, something that can be created democratically anywhere in the world, Again, most of where cryptocurrency companies have popped up have, been, again, been the West, particularly the United States. I would just strongly urge Muslims, instead of focusing on saying it's haram, think of ways that perhaps you can co-opt the practice to empower Muslims 
if cryptocurrency is what, then why can't Muslims back up their own cryptocurrencies? So, you know, instead of all of us live, um, whether we like it or not, all of us live at the mercy of the dollar. Um, and to a much lesser extent, the euro. Um, the American stock market, and if just a few handful of stock markets in the world, can controls the 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 rest of the economic pulse of the world. Cryptocurrency is coming in and complicated this picture. You can't produce a fiqhi response without taking that into account. I'm not saying it's, it, it, I'm just saying take it into account, you know, be sophisticated. When you analyze something, analyze it from all its sophisticated aspects. Just saying it's gharar, well, then, you know, there's so much gharar that surrounds our lives and everything. And, and, and everything. If you want to really... Um, launch a revolution against Gharar, then you're going to have to become far more, you're going to have to be far stronger in the world economy to actually be able to reshape the world on a non-Gharar principle. But the world we live in is, uh, Muslims are, are on, on, on the tail end of things. I mean, all their economic wealth, uh, it is even in, you know all the wealth of the countries that you bel- that mo- most Muslims belong to. Their their wealth is invested in the West. You know, living, breathing, eating gharar all the time, um, including Indonesia's economy and Malaysia's economy. Uh, so it just seems to be. Again, it just typically, typically just, you know, even if I say uh, a typically Muslim response, immediately everyone knows that what I'm saying is that it's a typically simplistic, naive response. Why, why, why do we have to be like that? You know, why can't say, why can't we get to the point where we say, ah, it's a Muslim response. It means it's a sophisticated, complicated. You know, really smart response. Why? I don't know. Okay, well, I forgot what, what else were. Um, what? Okay, you have eight minutes to answer the following What was the other two questions? <laughs> All right, first one um, was, I appreciated your emphasis on the moral insignificance of history as a dominant theme in, the, in Bakra. The transcendental status of morality is what appealed to me most about Islam. Could you please comment on the concept of al-maruf in the context of the moral insignificance of history? This is something that has always puzzled me. And then, is there a logic to the order of legal rulings addressed in the surah, or is it based on the chronological order for which these issues arose? Is there a reason that Akra comes second in the Quran after Fatiha? Okay, I, I have eight minutes, so I'll, I'll have to take the second question because the the first question, I don't know if we can do it in eight minutes. It, it, I'll tend to ramble. Um, um, as far as I know, and Allahu alam, um, there 
the there if there is a logic to the legal rulings in Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, I have not discovered it. Now, with with the Quran, you can you're constantly discovering new things. So, um, Allah Alam and someone else or I or you know my later on, um, as far as I know, it was the chronology of issues having said that though i do think that remember i talked about the anecdotal that the power the law as anecdotes that legal treatment is often an anecdote as to a moral lesson it teaches you something about value and what the, what Allah chose to talk about or the legal issues that Allah chose to address in the first revelation in Medina in Surah Al-Baqarah or the first prolonged re revelation to me does have great significance in understanding or in evaluating and analyzing um, the the emphasis on what norms take priority and are if you will a hierarchy hierarchy of norms um it is uh you know it is extremely noteworthy that the quran addresses regulating something core to society like marriage and divorce on the one end and the the, the structure or the or the authenticating of financial transactions that it shows to address the exploitative institution of usury that it chose to address various issues related to the giving of money and giving to aid to those who are needy. So that definitely enters into analyzing the um, what are primary moral foundations, what are secondary moral foundations, what and it is a part of a more holistic and a more regular analysis of the morality of the Quran. But you know why why divorce was addressed at this point in Surah Al-Baqarah, and then you know later on, usually is addressed. Other than the historical chronology. Uh, I don't know. Now, as to why Surah Al-Baqarah is first, there are two responses that are usually, in terms of the way the Quran is organized, there are two responses that are usually uh, given. Um, that 
Al-Fatha is an exception because it is the, the it is said to be the heart and soul of the Quran. The the, the, the entire Quran is is summed up in Al-Fatha. But other than that, that, the Quran was organized more or less by the size of the surahs, and that because Al-Baqarah was the longest, it was placed first. And you find that in, especially in the most, in, in the older sources, in in terms of Kutub um, Jam'a uh, Al-Quran or the Masahif, there are books called the Masahif. The Masahif are basically texts written about the, the collection of the Quran, the writing of the Quran, and the organization of the Quran. Um, then in later centuries um, texts written after the 3rd or 4th century Hijra uh, you, what you what you start reading is that the Baqarah was placed first because in Surah Al-Baqarah is the most comprehensive commentary about all affairs that parallel what happens in real life. That in Surah Al-Baqarah is um, whether direct, with addressed directly or addressed by example, is the most comprehensive. Um, so what you know from from just saying, well, in the first centuries, just saying, well, it's basically an, an organizing principle that you put the, the longest first, to those saying that, no, there is a, there is a theological reason that Surah Al-Baqarah is put first, and that Surah Al-Baqarah is, in fact, the most comprehensive, and hence also, the most the the nucleus of the Quran that it is the the sort of the the, the core of the Quran. Some even argued that Surah Al-Baqarah. I remember, and I don't remember. I I probably could find out which text. I mean, if I go back and look at my notes and stuff. But he said that Surah Al-Baqarah is like the the heart of an onion, where all the other shells grow out. You know, like the lay, how the onion is layered, and that Surah Al-Baqarah is basically the the core, and then all the other sore are like layers upon Surah Al-Baqarah. Um, and I can see that. I mean, it it is. Um, in 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 many ways, I mean, if the the balance of the Quran is, is sort of it's all touched been touched upon in Surah Al-Baqarah as as a core. But whether that was the organizing principle as to why Surah Al-Baqarah was placed first, I, you know, I I, I don't know. Um, um, I mean, it's a it's a valid theological insight. Especially as the idea gained currency 
that the way the Quran is organized um, is decreed by God. In in the early book on Masahif and Kutub Jama'a Quran, you will find a lot of discussion and a lot of disagreement as to whether it was divinely ordained and revealed that the Quran be organized the way it's organized, for the surahs in the order that they're in. The in the later centuries, um, the idea that the current organization of the Mus'haf, the way it's organized, is actually ordained by God, gains far greater ground. Um, I mean, the historian in me is skeptical that that it that the organization of the Quran was divinely ordained. Um, because just of, of all the the reports that challenge that um, but you know I would not be in favor of any effort that tries to publish the Quran in a different organization because um, history has a weight and communities of interpretation have a weight and you better come up with very good reason why to break rank with something that generation upon generation upon generation have done you know it doesn't mean it means that the presumption is against you and you have to bear the weight of evidence for as to why you would organize the Quran, if you or come up with a, a someone, you know, some people have suggested publishing the Quran uh, surahs organized by order of revelation, and and as long as that doesn't become the standard of Quran, so in other words, you you're intentionally publishing it with the, all the explanations as to the debates about the order the order of revelation, because we don't want to give the impression to people. That we are we are absolutely no when every surah was revealed uh, in order of relation because as we've as we've shown in in many examples um, we're not sure what the order of revelation was um, and I don't think they I, I think these debates you know are very deeply embedded in Islamic history um, anyway. Okay, alhamdulillah, does it feel like three and a half plus hours have passed? I think, um, no, I know, so engaging. God, it's been that long? Yeah, it's, after, wow. it's 10 o'clock, after 10 o'clock. You so, know, it's am the amazing thing is that when I teach, like, if I have a two-hour seminar in, in law, I feel completely destroyed after a two-hour <laughs> seminar. It's very very different with this, uh, when it's... Uh, Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Well, it's been like that every every halakha, actually. I feel like it, it flies by. So um, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Thank you, Sheikh, for in incredible, enlightening answers. Um, you know, we, we have the you know remaining questions, but we also have questions that we've been collecting along the way. So I think there is an, also an argument for us just to 
collect the pool of questions over the halakas, you know, and there will be a time when we address a lot of these, these things and have an opportunity to go back to. And so I think it's important for us to consider that we, you know, we're, we're on a pace right now. We're, we, we've got a mission. We've got to finish all the, the surahs. So we'll talk offline about what makes sense, but um, I, I don't know if, uh, if we'll do another Q&A. But we do know that we will be back on, on Saturday, inshallah. inshallah. So I hope that you guys will join us. Thank you for uh, being with us. Can I just say that I, I, I feel really um, I, I feel particularly uh, 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 touched and privileged that we have so many visitors from uh, that came to today's halakha. I'm, I'm like just humbled and really deeply touched by all the people that uh, came. It's, Extended family, alhamdulillah. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I, I, I'm, so. yeah. And we, we're hoping, I mean, you know, our dream one day is hopefully that things will settle down with the pandemic and we can, you know, invite more people, you know, to come be with us because, um, you know, we really treasure this community and, you know, there are people who follow us from afar, even if they're not with us on live stream, but, you know, we hear from so many people who are, are with us and, and, and people who love this deserve to know one another because these are special people who, who believe in knowledge and believe in the power of, of this approach. So thank you, everybody. I hope that you will join us in celebrating um, the very appropriate Surah Bakara conclusion tomorrow as an alternative to Thanksgiving, <laughs> um, or Thanksgiving for the end of Surah Bakara. Um, and you know, I'm really excited for what remains, which is still, oh my gosh, now we've finished 68. So we have 46 to go, is that right? Inshallah, amazing. So thank you for being with us. Have a wonderful, um, hopefully, holiday. And we will see you on Saturday, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.